This is my happening and it freaks me out. If you want while living fast and if you want to end up giving your all. Let me call, but the cat is living reckless, but the cat is right high. If you think that you can tame her, well, just you try. That she doesn't say what's wrong from right. She's running fast and free, child of the night. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. And I'm Patrick Rapol, and with us, a very special guest. Uh, you know his work from uh, Daily Grindhouse. Uh, he runs the uh, Psychotronics Netflix uh, Facebook page. Ooh. Um, Paul, oh, I already forgot how to pronounce your last name. How is it again? It's Freitag Faye. Sorry. Freitag Faye. <laughs> all, all hyphenated and confusing. But, nice. Uh, excellent. Welcome. Paul, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Thank you for uh, letting me, leap, letting me uh, speak here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I, I, uh, I know Paul as a, as a fellow uh, fan of horror films and stuff, but uh, the real reason we have him on here is he's also an expert in uh, uh, exploitation films. Um, I mean, that's the kind of stuff you guys cover at Daily Grindhouse. Uh, most definitely. And uh, this episode, we're going to be covering Russ Meyer, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, I'm too. Um, I'm not as familiar with exploitation cinema. Um, I've dabbled in it a little bit, especially when I was younger. But it was definitely nice kind of going back and checking out Russ Meyer films. Um, I definitely think it's to check out as many as I'd like to because they're kind of hard to find. Yeah, that's, that's a, maybe an apology you should make up to listeners up front. I mean, the two films we're going to be talking about are his most well-known. We're going to be mm-hmm. talking about Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And Beyond the Valley of the Dolls is actually a studio film, so that one you can find uh, on DVD fairly easily. But uh, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill is out of print. I mean, if you, want, if you are not opposed to less legal means, it's probably easy to, pretty easy to find. can't believe um, that one's out of print. John Waters well, must be pissed. Well, <laughs> well, there's a, there's a whole whole big story with regards to the Russmeyer estate, whereas the uh, the people who are running his estate right now are not uh, very friendly when it comes to actually getting his films uh, distribution. So they're essentially unavailable. That's right. I, I have the uh, a PAL box set uh, that I that I imported. So if you go to Amazon.co.uk, you can get a box set. Uh, of his that has pretty much all of his major films except for Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, um, and that was that only cost me like thirty five dollars plus shipping. Hmm. Uh, but it's all PAL, so it, it'll, it'll play on. It's it's I think it's PAL. It might be Region Two. You can only it's watch also, it with a PAL. Yeah, you can only watch it with a PAL. Um, right. In that case, I'm very friendly with a region free DVD player. <laughs> um, actually, for some reason, Jim, the Blu-ray player that you gave me. Is region can play any region of DVD? Fuck! Why did I give that to you then? I don't know. <laughs> I was really surprised. I, I didn't even know it. Put it in there. I put it in there for shits and giggles. I don't know. I don't think that's a that's a, something that all Blu-ray players have. No, hmm. no. Wish it were. But yeah. So I mean, if you wanted to da- buy, buy the box set, you could still watch them on your laptop or and everything using VLC Media Player or something like that. That right. would be. But yeah, for the most part, they're kind of hard to find. Um, but I, I too, I'm a, I'm a pretty big fan of exploitation movies. Though uh, rewatching all these movies actually made me sort of rethink a lot of it um, and sort of just examine what I really like about them. Jim, would I be correct in assuming that 
like me, you sort of your introduction to exploitation movies was Quentin Tarantino. Yes, definitely. Um, you know, I I probably said this on the show before, but what when after I saw Pulp Fiction and I read like uh, one of his biographies, uh, you know, of course it mentions all the films that influenced him, all his favorite films, and that's how I basically wound up at a video store every weekend renting all the films that inspired him. And, of course, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill was one of them. Um, and I, I hadn't seen it in a long time since, you know, way back when, but I definitely found a lot more uh, on a rewatch than I did the first time I saw it because I'm far more familiar with the movies that clearly were influenced by Faster Pussycat. Yeah. How did you get into uh, exploitation movies, Paul? Um... Mostly through horror movies. I mean, uh, when I was in high school, uh, I was I was very big into horror movies and had a subscription to Fangoria and all that. And I think kind of using that as uh, and kind of gateway directors like like Dario Argento or, or Mario Bava or George Romero or uh, other other horror directors that also kind of took their cues from from other genres and were were a lot more. Uh, artistically inclined in nature caused me to kind of go out and explore other things. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know, that the, I've never really been into any kind of specific genre of exploitation film since then. Uh, I've just kind of uh, sampled and really explored all of the various subgenres, and it's just kind of been, uh, been fascinating just partially because there are so many different uh, subgenres of exploitation films, just cashing in on various different movements and, uh, and what, what the audiences wanted to see at the time. And some of them are fascinating and some of them are just horrible to sit through. So. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's definitely, uh, if you, if you decide, like I definitely, after, uh, I think being really obsessed with Jackie Brown just went back and, uh, it appeared like when I was 19, I just watched every black exploitation movie I could find. And yep. for, ev- for every super fly, there's like six like brotherhood of deaths, which is, <laughs> yeah. you know, that like true. for, for every, for everyone that's like a genuinely interesting or just really compelling movie. There's one that's just, uh, there's not just one, there's one. several. Yeah. There. There's dozens yeah. of just like low, low rent cash-ins, but, but even, even in a lot of those low rent cash-ins, they'll have like really unique moments or something that's really just, completely insane in them um that's why i love the the phenomenon of kind of making like mixtapes of all these exploitation movies that just kind of have like the highlight reels in a lot of cases that's kind of all you want to see yeah is just like the the big climactic moment when you know the the guy strangles someone to death with his giant penis or something because the rest (laughs) of the movie isn't really that were that much worth sitting through or the moment in motorcycles when uh uh what's haji the snake sucks uh, out the snake right then oh. has, like spits out a huge mouthful of blood yeah that is incredible <laughs> oh man yeah yeah exactly and oh, i'm i'm really excited to be talking about uh russ meyer and exploitation movies in general because it's not the sort of thing we cover in general because there probably aren't too many exploitation directors um with that are well known that that offer a lot of meat that, that would offer a whole lot to chew on in terms of their work. Like Jack Hill, I'd probably say would be one. Um, oh yeah. We got Russ put Meyer. him on the list. Yeah. So, especially after seeing uh spider baby fairly recently. Yeah. Yeah. Me and Jim saw spider baby, uh, at 
the uh, at the uh, the massacre right, uh, last yeah. year. That's a great, great film movie. Yeah, that was really, that was really, that was a, that was a movie that just blew my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, and Russ Meyer is such an interesting style and everything. It's going to be really interesting to talk about it because also the thing about exploitation movies is they are exploitative. <laughs> and yeah. as a uh, well-meaning liberal feminist, you know <laughs> that I that I consider myself to be. Uh, a lot of films, uh, uh, I, I especially you know Russ Meyer movies I'm watching, and it's just, it's really hard to stomach. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll be talking more about that later um, for sure when we talk about Russ Meyer. But um, do you, Jim, do you have any business to take care of? Uh, not off the top of my head. Um, you know, I after just uh, catching up with the latest episode of uh, the Cinecast, which I'm actually going to be on next week, which is going to be really cool. I'm going to be reviewing a couple of new releases, um, uh, including Short Turn 12, which is my favorite movie of the year. Um, I will definitely delve more into why I think it's an extraordinary piece of work, but it's a very personal movie for me. Um, but I, they just mentioned, since they haven't been on for like five weeks, uh, your movie club podcast appearance which you didn't bring up last week so i think oh, you I should promote that well that's true yes yeah. so i was on the latest episode of the movie club where we talked about two very unusual film adaptations we talked about naked lunch and we talked about tristram shandy um i it was real it was a lot of fun um it was one of those it's, it was one of those conversations where uh i didn't have a full opinion until after the conversation ended <laughs> that happens um, a lot a, to me i had a lot of yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I had a lot of ideas and thoughts, and they didn't really become coherent um, until I had to. Basically, I was the only person on that podcast who was really into William S. Burroughs, and right. and if you're not really into William S. Burroughs, Naked Lunch is just impenetrable. Um, uh, so, like, I, 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 in having to defend that movie to people who found it impenetrable, and having to defend sort of uh, what I found really interesting and fascinating and worthwhile and uh, very true about that movie, I ended up. It was a really good conversation, uh, I really think. So, uh, yeah, check out the Movie Club. Uh, is it called Movie Club Podcast? Yeah, movieclubpodcast.blogspot.com. And uh, I think they're already going to be recording another one um, later this month, or later in October, I should say. So it's going to be like a art house horror movie double feature, featuring a Ken Russell movie, and I'm not too familiar with Ken Russell. So I'm looking to possibly pop on that show. So... What was the what was the Ken Russell movie? I forget. <laughs> um, Dark House Horror. It was like Layer of the White Worm, maybe. I don't mm. think it's Layer of the White Worm. It's Altered States. No. Oh, it's something Devil, maybe. Oh, the yeah. Devils. Yeah, that's it. Something oh, that devils. simple. Yeah. I really I love Altered States. Yeah, yeah. States. That and the uh, Possession. I've never seen either of those films. Right. So. Um, I'm excited about that. Um, also, I would like to say, uh, you know, thanks. We got a lot of emails from people who are really excited to have us back, and we're really flattered about all that. Oh yeah. Um, keep keep all those emails coming in, and uh, you know, I, I would be interested in giving up my section of what we watched this week in the in the coming episodes to a reader question. So if you guys have any questions, you know, you'd like us to answer, if you have anything topics you'd like us to talk about or whatever, you know, send in any ideas to our, our email and uh, if, if we think it'd make for a good conversation we'd definitely love to indulge you yeah that'd be a great idea I'd, I'd love to interact and because uh, we do we mostly get emails with you know comments and 
you know, uh, suggestions. But if you have anything specific you'd like us to address, we're, we're all for that. We've already been challenged, I believe, to watch uh, two, se- two horror movie series for October. Didn't this happen um, last year? It did. We did not end up <laughs> watching any of the Hellraisers that we were challenged to watch all of them. Um, but uh, our biggest fan, Brian Pite, uh, Piet, uh, sorry, don't know how to pronounce your last name, sir. Um, yeah, he challenged us to watch Child's Play and I think one other one. Final Destination. Uh, Final Destination, which are both series I would not mind revisiting. I like Child's Play series a lot, and eh, I like Final Destination 2 quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, so. I love Final Destination 2. Um, yeah. That'd be kind of fun, and, you know, word to the wise out there, um, if you are browsing torrent sites, I've I've noticed that the latest uh, Child's Play is out and about uh, for people, if they're interested. Not it's- that we promote... Uh, torrenting films no of course not but i'm i've just heard through the grapevine that the curse of chucky the latest in the series um and written and directed by the original writer of the series is out there so kind of curious about that yeah have you have you heard anything about that paul i've heard generally favorable things from the couple of things i've read so i am disappointed that does not follow up from Seed of Chucky. Yeah. yeah. It's a really new story, but... It's a pretty so. dead end. I, I, I mean, <laughs> I would just be impressed if they continued yeah, on. It's if true. they followed up. You know, if they can do a weekend at Bernie's 2, they can follow up <laughs> Seed of Chucky with more insane crap. So. Yeah. That's a good point. More Jennifer um, Tilly is fine by me. <laughs> Even absolutely. as a doll. <laughs> or as both. Um, sure. God, Jennifer Tilly is so fucking good. Mm-hmm. Hey, everybody, watch Seed of Chucky, and then uh, also listen to the commentary with Jennifer Tilly on Seed of Chucky, <laughs> where she proceeds to just drop out all of this. She's there with the director, and she just drops all this info. The director's clearly not comfortable with her dropping. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, like the director's trying to, you know, do the do the diplomatic thing where he's like, oh, you know, it was really great to work with Redman. You know, he's so funny. He's such a talented actor, and it was just like it was really fun to have him on set. And Jennifer Tilly's just like, actually. I think we, they just wanted him on the soundtrack. <laughs> and then there's a long pause. And then she goes, he didn't do it, though. <laughs> and then the director's like, no. <laughs> it's fucking amazing. Jennifer Tilly. Oh, yeah. Also, just look up any appearance that she's ever done on like a late night, on like a late night talk show or whatever. She's just a treasure. Jennifer Tilly's one of my favorite people ever. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, anyway, uh, that's all the... Uh, that's all the business I think we have to take care of. True. So uh, why don't we just go right ahead into what we watched this week? I like that, actually. Children of men. Ah, 
Hey, Paul, how about you go first? Um, what have I watched this week? No, I, I watched uh, Compliance last night, which Ooh, I hadn't seen before. I love that movie. Uh, it, it is very good. I, I was kind of, you know, having known what it was about, by about a, uh, a half an hour in, I was kind of like, okay, but I kind of get where this is going. And it does mm-hmm. become increasingly uncomfortable. But to me, it's like the, the moment when it's all kind of discovered and the actual, uh, uh, the actual ramifications of what they've done comes into set. That's when the, the movie really, really hits and it's really impressive. So, um, I don't know. I, I, I liked it a lot. I can't say that I'll be, you know, watching it again because it is so kind of blisteringly uncomfortable. Right. But, uh, it's, uh, it's certainly something I'm, I'm glad I, I finally sat down to see. It's a very interesting um, bonus episode we did on compliance and the imposter uh, because mm-hmm. they're well, not so much the imposter. I've kind of been the only one who's been like uh, a little apprehensive about loving it as much as everybody else is, but I'm definitely planning on rewatching it. But I, I found myself defending compliance uh, amongst a, a couple of our podcasting peers. And uh, I, I, that one of the arguments was that it, it probably would have made for uh, a better documentary in terms of the format. And it's interesting if you you know, check out the like uh, Dateline special that on the actual story, and you see the uh, hidden video camera footage. It's it's even more disturbing. Um, mm-hmm. But I thought they did a really good job of not making it too exploitive and keeping it as really um, intense and it's sort of built to a lot of you know horrendous shit. But I think the uh, interesting choice of the filmmaker, and I know I don't think you've seen this yet, Patrick. So I won't delve too much into it. But I have not seen Compliance. No. Yeah, but showing the actual guy, uh, you know, who, who you know, pretty quickly, put pretty early on in the film, was kind of up for debate as to whether or not that was a good choice on part of the director. Like keeping him more in the dark might have been interesting, as opposed to seeing his you know, devilish plan in action through his perspective. Mm. You know, I think people can make that argument, but I thought it was still a good choice to uh, actually see him. Do you think that would have added to the mystery had he not been shown? Because I think people going into the movie already know kind of the the, the end game uh, um, as as to not necessarily his identity, but what his identity isn't. Um, do you think it would really make a difference if it was shown or not? Um, I, I don't know. I, I, the, the thing is, I was I was familiar with the actor, so I mean, it, it, it didn't necessarily take me out of the movie at all. But I, I when I was talking to um, our uh, our guests on the show, they just felt like um, having him, you know, on screen. I mean, whether or not he would have made a it would have been a better choice just to make him a voice on the phone or not. Um, I don't think it really took anything away from what he was doing, like specifically like how evil and devilish and, you know, heartless he was, Mm. Uh, you know, a sociopath essentially. And I think that, you know, the, it is just the, the, the discomfort you feel during that movie, putting yourself in that position, realizing that all this really happened. I think actually, you know, it is one of those movies too, where if you do research ahead of time, it can actually add and enhance the experience. 
um, because you know you realize, holy shit, like this is n- this is not. It's just one of those stories that if you actually, you know, were told about it, you wouldn't believe it's true. But it is mm-hmm. true, and I think that as the movie goes on and on and on, you see all these things happening. Um, I I don't know. My I felt it was really effective, and I think the director did a good job outside of like a couple of you know choices of like showing a, a, a like a limp straw at a at a really inappropriate time i guess uh like mm-hmm. just some you know some cutaways that i thought were questionable but um i thought the acting was great uh especially by ann dowd the uh mm-hmm. manager of the restaurant um did it does it open with based on a true story like a based on a true story it does mm-hmm. okay yeah. so uh, so this is actually something i was thinking about that is interesting about this film which is um Okay, it is based on a true story, and there there was apparently uh, Jim. You said there was a Dateline sort of episode about it. I'm imagine the Dateline episode came out mm-hmm. before the movie came out, um, and so it was a, a story that was known. But there is sort of a phenomenon of films coming out in festivals, and the whole nature of a film festival is you're just seeing so many movies, and you really only have director, country of origin, <laughs> and title, often or a brief description or whatever, and like I feel like there is a ton of buzz coming out of compliance, um, uh, based on you know the, the, it was sort of just the shock of that movie coming out of the all the festivals and stuff. And then Paul, you said sort of like you just sort of seeing it only now, like you sort of knew what you were getting into. Do you think the movie suffers at all from uh, from that sort of thing, or like if I, if I've read enough reviews of the film, even if I don't know who the what the reveal of who the person is. Like Paul said, I do know who the person isn't. Um, do you think that uh, that kind of affects a film like this? Either of you? <laughs> um, I, I'd say it, it can. I don't necessarily think it does in this case. No. Uh, I mean, I I have a tendency to avoid reading about movies at all before oh, yeah. I see them. Um, I will even avoid trailers if I if I can. Um, basically, I'm like, okay, I need to know a basic concept, knowing the director generally, and just the general feel of is this something worth seeing or not. And I try to to go in without any anything more than that. With compliance, there wasn't really a way to do that. I mean, even just the slightest, it it was interesting uh, and. Be- and got all this buzz because it was based on the true story, because it was based on this kind of unbelievable event. So right. I don't think there was a way to, to sell the movie without kind of factoring that. Yeah. In. Otherwise it's like, Hey, see this kind of thriller about some guy that calls a fast food chain. Like, yeah. That's yeah. not, that, that, that's not going to sell the truck. I found myself in the past, uh, just this year, I think, like just staying away almost completely from uh, trailers. I don't really read movie sites anymore. Um, I follow enough critics on Twitter that I can get a general sense of what buzz is just by the conversations they're having. Um, I don't really read that many reviews anymore. I definitely don't watch trailers and stuff. I've definitely found that helps. So you have no idea what people are saying about gravity? (laughs) No, no. I mean, again, I I get the general idea of uh, because of Twitter and stuff, but I – I didn't actually – I wanted to watch the Gravity teaser or whatever, but I couldn't because my internet was shitty, <laughs> and I have not gone back and watched it. Uh, so, like, I'm excited about seeing Gravity 
blank, which might be hypocritical because on this podcast we have a we have a rule that if a movie is old, over two years old, then we're just going to talk about everything about it and we're going to spoil everything because we don't think spoiler because both of us have the opinion that spoilers don't really they don't ruin a movie and um, I still think I. Huh. Like I, I, so now I'm thinking about this because I think it might be more that spoilers. I don't think they ruin a movie. They can definitely hurt a viewing experience, um, depending on what they are. But I do think that having conversations about film that are non-spoiler hurts the conversation. Uh, hmm. So I guess that's why we do that. Well, I, you, you bring up an interesting point just in general with, you know, reading too much or, you know, hearing too much. I, I listen to a lot of film podcasts and it sort of depends, like, especially in, you know, recently there's been a lot of podcasts that are um, dedicating to uh, the TIFF, you know, the Toronto International Film Festival and talking about, like, we saw this and we saw this. And uh, as I'm listening to it, I... They're they're not going to be giving away specific plot details or anything. They're just talking about what they liked and what they didn't like. And to me, that that gets me more excited for you know like uh, Under the Skin or Gravity. Uh, you know, it's they're just saying this is what I thought was great about it. But at the same time, they're not diving into every little detail or how it ends or anything. They're really kind of disciplined in that regard to sort of entice you and get you excited about something as opposed to like giving it all away or having a full spoiler review. Uh, and I don't, I don't know. I don't mind that kind of hype. Although sometimes it works against us because we go in there with certain expectations and then we're like, really, everybody thought that was so great. And it really wasn't, you know? Or yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, that's, probably primarily why I don't listen to any other film podcast is just because I can't deal with uh, if I have both neither if I haven't seen a movie then them talking less about the movie makes me understand less about I don't know it's I don't know, you, know, you can also be even if you don't spoil plot points you can be you know tone can be surprising um, you yeah. know if so if no, if so if someone didn't tell you a single event in God, uh, only God forgives. But they told, you, but they did say that it remains that <laughs> that sort of somnambulant throughout the whole thing. And it's <laughs> it's like you would be like uh, it would be different. Then it would be a different experience walking into the theater than when I walked in the theater. Me and Jim, uh, we saw uh, Only God Forgives together, and we was like, I can't believe it's still going this slowly. <laughs> like yeah. we kept, you know, we were waiting for the it to break out of its spell, and it never did. And that was a like tone can be a surprise, and pace can be a surprise, and all sorts of things. I don't know. I'm uh, again. I find that I can't have a conversation without just talking about a movie as a whole. So I'm not going to try. But uh, I think I probably also am not the kind of person who would listen to my own podcast. I don't know if that makes me a hypocrite or what, but. <laughs> no, I think, but apparently it doesn't affect it doesn't affect compliance. Um, I, I grew up listening to talk radio and movie reviews that didn't spoil anything. It was mostly just like, hey, go check this movie out if you think it sounds interesting. And a lot of podcasts nowadays are extensions of that. Uh, you know, so luckily, like uh, even Film Junk, they they sort of save spoiler discussions for the very end. If you if there's something like a movie like Prisoners, which I saw and thought was pretty good. 
there's certain things that you don't want to you know give away because I think uh, there's not necessarily the surprise element, but it just it'll take you out of the movie if you knew all these things in advance while watching it. But at the same time, there is a lot to appreciate about it other than the specific plot details. You know, there's the cinematography, there's the acting, there's just a lot of other things going on in that movie, too, psychologically. But I, I, overall, I, I've been listening to podcasts for a long time now, and it doesn't necessarily take away from an experience. But I think maybe once in a blue moon when somebody says, this is one of the best movies of the year, and I go in and I see it with that preconceived notion... And I don't think so. Um, you have to wonder if it's hype related that, you know, your response to the movie could it be based on, you know, preconceived hype that you just keep hearing everywhere. Like, what if I walk in, and I think, you know, Gravity isn't an amazing movie, which I don't think is going to happen. But <laughs> yeah, um, I, 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 for some reason, I listen to more. I don't the video game podcast I listen to that or enthusiast podcasts are like video game podcasts and i for whatever reason that never bothers me to listen to people talk about a video game that i've never played or whatever hmm. um but um then again i only really listen to the one podcast and it's really great so idle thumbs uh <laughs> uh plug for a thing i'm not related to at all um but uh, it's i don't know i mean i'm I, at this point i'm trying to talk myself out of even recording a podcast i don't know what i'm trying to argue uh, well, I, I was mostly interested if compliance i i feel like compliance is the sort of story that if i had walked in cold and i i had never heard of before this movie came out and i was reading critic reactions i'd never heard of the true story behind it um if i walked into this movie and all i heard was it was really amazing and tense and that phone call came that was supposedly from a person that you that is maybe not from that person uh and i just believe that i i don't know and i and i haven't even seen the movie so I, i can't even make this argument really but it feels like I really like being surprised a lot uh, by not just, you know, content, but also by things being good. Like how, how many movies have you ever gone to see because someone was like, Oh, the last stand, that new Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It actually turns out it's pretty good. You should see it. And, but the only reason they said it was pretty good is because they walked in thinking it was going to be shit. And then you <laughs> walk in thinking it's pretty good. And you're like, I guess that was pretty good, but is that all I really want? Like even the pleasant surprise of a movie not being bad can be a more pleasurable experience than walking into a B minus movie that you know is going to be a B minus movie. No, no, that's, that's true. I was actually talking to a, a friend of mine earlier this summer and we were talking about uh, Pacific Rim and uh, Wolverine. Yeah. And, he was very. He was disappointed by Pacific Rim, but ended up liking Wolverine a lot more than he expected to because everybody was just kind of ripping on Wolverine and touting Pacific Rim as this amazing movie. Yeah. And Pacific Rim is a. It's a solid. It's a fun movie. I mean, it's not. But unfortunately, I think just because it's a better than average kind of big summer movie, it ended up getting touted as a. a a much more intelligent movie than than it's, it actually is. I, that was a weird phenomenon around Pacific Rim. Yeah. When we were, we were, the podcast was around this, I probably would have talked about this. Like, it's still weird to me that, and I, I think cinephiles on the internet, like internet film nerds, mm. are a very specific kind of cinephile. Uh, and so, I mean, I have a general sense of that, if you can call it a community. It's just a bunch of people who either write for a bunch of blogs and websites or read a bunch of blogs and websites and stuff. 
or and you know some are proper film critics who also do stuff for AV Club or Dissolve or uh, whatever. But like, like there's a thing where people are still attracted to money. Like Pacific Rim, the whole thing behind it was, oh my god, it's Guillermo del Toro, and they gave him a huge budget. And, like, everyone's freaking out about how big a budget they gave a director they liked. And that still blows my mind because I've never, never in my life have seen huge budget equals <laughs> equals better product. Mm. Like, uh, honestly, Russ Meyer is one of the few examples where he got a little bit more of a budget um, with Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And that movie is a lot more... Uh, polished and and uh, you know it's fun to look at and it's just the extra time he probably got to write the screenplay probably helped a lot in that and everything but like whereas so like Pacific Rim it got hyped as oh it's the next like it got hyped the way almost Dark Knight got hyped where it was just it's a big movie plus it's made for us where it's made for quote unquote us which is nerds who are into like kaiju movies and who have who have that history with them but i don't know why big movie is a automatically a selling point um i'm never i mean i don't i know jim you're not that way and i'm not that way but there are a lot of people who will it's just like oh if if ryan johnson's next movie was a 200 million dollar sci-fi movie they would be fucking flipping out whereas i don't want to see ryan johnson make a 200 million dollar sci-fi movie i want to see i like what he i like where he operates i like the small scale stories that he tells um I don't know, that's always weird to me. Well, it's funny you bring up Ryan Johnson, because uh, I want to segue into what I watched this week. And, oh, absolutely. And it's it's not really movie-related. It is uh, all TV, because um, now that Breaking Bad is coming to an end, and... In By the time this podcast comes out, you will know how it ended. Yes. Um, <laughs> and obviously, I'm not going to you know delve too deeply into the last few episodes but ryan johnson's episode is one for the ages the his most recent one for i guess they're calling it season 5b or, or it's that's the confusing thing like i i think pe- some people are calling it season six it's actually you know the duration the rest of season five technically so um the third to last episode of Breaking Bad, Ryan Johnson just blew me away with his directing and his incredible choices with paying, you know, obvious homage to like Scorsese in some instances, but just doing it to complement the story and make things as intense as anything I've ever seen. But um, since I'm going to go through serious withdrawal uh, after Breaking Bad is over, because it is pretty much my favorite show ever. Um, I had to finally step up and start watching The Sopranos. Now, have you ever seen Sopranos before this time? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> which, is, which is crazy wow. for... I know. Uh, who knew there was an entire you know TV series with a therapy element that I've been way late to the party on? You know, I, I, I'm like I'm watching this. You know, even just through the first season, going, this is something I should have been watching as it aired because it's, it's it appeals to me in so many ways. But I wrote it off. I was kind of tired of mafia mobster genre. You know, 
depictions. I thought, you know, oh, it's just going to be, you know, a bunch of bad guys killing people. And I had no idea, like, the dramatic weight and sort of the existential uh, approach to telling this story. It's, you know, I'm... For a while, I was like thinking, oh, it's just going to be like a soap opera version of Analyze This. You know, like I was really dismissive of it. And I, I'm watching it now sort of like laughing at myself because <laughs> I'm kind of like, this is as perfect a, of a TV show I've ever seen. And I wish I could, you know, be more in the know of like every little detail, every little thing that's happened. And But it's funny because we were just discussing like knowing too much. I know how this show ends because of pop culture, you know, and their satires, their parodies of how The Sopranos ends. I just heard through word of mouth, basically, people's reaction, how divisive the ending of the series was. Um, so, but, I, you know, obviously, I don't know the context. I don't know. Obviously, I'm going to be more affected by it as I go through each season. Um, I just, I really do think it's like this interesting exercise in, like, uh, nihilism against the like American dream as flow of capital or this sort of patriarchal denial that Tony keeps going through like he's like much like Breaking Bad it's a really interesting examination of denial and how that eats away at you and forces you into doing these horrific narcissistic things and not having self-awareness and how it's affecting other people. And um, I just got to the end of season four where Carmela just finally had enough of his uh, cheating. And that was like one of the most explosive things I've ever seen. Um, and like every single character is three-dimensional. And I, I realized that there are... Th- things throughout the the series like storylines that are kind of like left out in the open never tied together um including one of the best episodes where um Polly and Christopher go out into the woods well I, I think it's good that that never gets tied I agree I, think, I like I, that's that's the that's a dangling thread I'm really happy they left dangling yeah directed by uh Steve Buscemi no less that's oh, right uh, yeah it's one of one of the better episodes uh I fell in love with the show Meadowlands, early I think that so it's called. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I fell in love with the show early on with uh, the college episode in season one. It's very self-contained. It's where Carmela almost uh, has an affair with the priest, and uh, Tony is taking Meadow to check out some colleges, and he finds uh, um, an old rival who was in the witness protection program, I guess. And that whole episode was like what is going to happen you just never knew and you it, it, you really got to know the characters you know on an intimate level because it only focuses on uh two groups at a time uh as opposed to like you know hanging out with the entire uh clan of people but i don't know i just it, it's, a, it's a show that i'm sure is, a lot has been written about and it makes best of all time lists and i can completely see why and I'm looking forward to just talking with you again after it's all over, too, because well, I think it's an important show. It's funny. You're actually exactly where I am. So I started rewatching it as well um, because I, a, cause I now have HBO Go because uh, my parents have HBO. So they, let me, <laughs> they give me the password to their account or whatever. But awesome. Like, and I've been rewatching it, and I started 
because I'd seen the first, I used to own the first three seasons on DVD, so I had seen those a bunch. So I started with season four, um, and I just, I'm sort of like three or four episodes into season five now. Um, and uh, it's really striking, the filmmaking uh, yeah. aspect of it is really striking, especially as far as editing goes, where it, they absolutely eschew all established. Like, if you if you want to think about like one of the most biggest television tropes ever, it's every every scene always needs an establishing shot. Mm-hmm. Like, every it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I mean, that's, I think it's less true for sitcoms now. But like, every fucking episode of Seinfeld opens with that slow push into their apartment building. Like, we know what Jerry's apartment looks like. We don't need to see it again. <laughs> there are never any establishing shots in Sopranos. They will have an. There will be an episode where thirteen characters all have different. You know. Play different parts um and the way they'll do it is they'll just have a scene that is eight seconds long and it'll just open and you'll hear someone say something and you'll see where they are and that that just tells you the story that just gets you up to date on where they are and a decision they've made or whatever um yeah the editing is incredible especially i think this is one of the best shows or i don't know anything where i've seen the use of music and it's, it's used to punctuate a scene and cut like at the most precise, perfect time. It could be mid-song, you know, it could be like an abrupt moment, but man, like the use of music on this show is pretty phenomenal. And like, you'll hear a song that's you know so well from classic rock radio, like More Than a Feeling, and it's used to accentuate a panic attack. Like, that's genius, <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely sort of take from the Scorsese school sure. of... Uh, music stuff, but they, especially the the game they played, it was almost like, and here's the thing, because it was so early on in what we now know as cable television and sort of the tel- cable television landscape, it almost felt like it was a, like a game they were playing where they were just showing off, where they would just like every single episode ends with some pop, piece of popular music over the end credits mm-hmm. that that is I that it's in some way ironic or knowing or uh, something like that, and it's it it just, it, it cracks me up. And there's a little bit of uh, watching it now. It almost there is a little bit of growing pains um, as far as there is. There's things that, uh, for example, I mean, Breaking Bad has a lot easier job because it has so many less characters and it's telling so much more of yeah. a smaller scale story. Um, but there's, uh, but it's sort of the best example. Uh, I mean, you compared it to Breaking Bad. It's it, it is a good comparison point as far as TV then and now. Um, they would do they do this thing. There's this tendency if you watch. Sopranos, where every every single scene that does start because they don't have an establishing shot, it starts with a character saying something, but like the last sentence of a of a story they were telling or whatever. But there's but there's always a brief pause before they start that sentence. So it, there's this weird unnatural like slight pause when any given scene starts, where it'll just it'll just show wine being poured into a glass and then it'll zoom out and you'll see Polly or whatever and then he'll go anyway and then I kicked him in the fucking head and then they all <laughs> yeah. laugh and then they go anyway back to visit but like <laughs> it's, it's like really noticeable and I feel like those kinks are kind of ironed out like in watching Mad Men now it doesn't feel as oh shit we have to establish where we are right now okay uh, we have to they were just having a conversation like it it feels a lot more natural or you know watching a lot of uh, shows now um, also I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Like some of the the humor in that in Sopranos really bums me out because it's so dumb. It's for like a show that's so smart. 
like that they constantly go back to the well of they're dumb mobsters so they say one word when they really mean another word like <laughs> it could be yeah. such a bummer Polly has like, some great lines though you know i mean there's know, some of Sometimes it's great, and then sometimes they try to like extend it into a whole bit where it's like, you know, Quasimodo predicted this. Yeah. Oh, you mean Nostradamus? <laughs> like, yeah, Quasimodo of Notre Dame. Like, all right, you're no one's this dumb. It's like, uh, <laughs> it's like two, it's like two mobsters in a kids movie. Like, mm-hmm. um, I don't know. I, I really like the show a lot, though. Uh, the scale of that show is really incredible. I don't know if there's a show that has a character, a cast of characters that wide who all have their own arc, separate yeah. arcs. Um, and that it's confident enough to just, oh, we don't see Adriana for a couple episodes, but then we come back and we realize, okay, yes, this still is going on, and she's still... Have you seen The Sopranos, Paul? I have not seen The Sopranos. Okay. I, I can understand what you're saying, especially on that last point. I mean, that's one of the <clears throat> one of the many things that, that bothers me about True Blood, where oh, yeah. they're, they're just... Uh, they're afraid to let characters just kind of be for a little while, but no, every character has to be involved in some subplot every episode. Mm-hmm. Like, no, most of this is boring. Yeah. But... Uh, <laughs> But no, no, I haven't seen The Sopranos, partially because, as you said, I've kind of got that, that sense of, oh, it's, it's Analyze This, the series. No, it's, but, it's uh, not. And I'm, that's, I know, I'm happy I'm sure to say it is. that. Also, I don't like Lorraine Bronco. I don't know why. So, <laughs> it's, it's from Medicine Man. I'm like, I get that. Oh, I get that. Her, her dialogue from Medicine Man in my head, I'm like, I can't watch that. She was all. so great in the Dream Team. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. No, she's fine. Like as a therapist, she 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 pretty much fits the role. Like at times, she's kind of stoic, but you know, she certainly has an intense dramatic moment that I didn't see coming. And I think that's one of the strengths of the show is that the um, acts of violence often come out of left field, which oh, is really man. great. I want to see a supercut of every innocent bystander that's just been maimed on The Sopranos. <laughs> every single episode just has like two people have an argument, and then a waiter is just like. Hey, oh, excuse me, sir. And then they just kill him. Like they just, yeah. or they just like they just like beat him to death. And there's like every single episode has a moment where just someone falls out of a tree or someone gets pushed off a bridge because they didn't mean to. They just meant to hold him over to threaten him, and they let go. Like every single episode just has someone getting brutally beaten just because they reach the path. I love that thing about the episode. It's like there's this weird. Uh, it's it's both the Sopranos themselves are just this extreme uh, point of attrition where just every. Everyone and person they come in contact with, they just sort of chew up um, and, mm-hmm. and spit out, and they're just—it's just this weird all consuming. Which uh, again, it's it's this sort of critique of America and sort of the capitalist uh, dream and uh, American dream and all that, where it's just they are just they're the the raging id of of capitalism, <laughs> like <laughs> like underneath every every suit and business deal and stock uh, you know and stockbroker. Like the raging fucking huge Italian guy from New Jersey who just wants to beat the shit out of someone and take their money and doesn't give a fuck that they're losing their, uh, you know, they're losing their business or whatever their source of income is. Um, I really like that about the show. That's a really good, it's a good show. Yeah. And, uh, it's, and if you've ever wanted to just see like Joey Pants' character from Bound stretched out for like <laughs> an entire season, then this is the show for you because. That made me kind of happy because he's just the best slime ball. Oh, he's so – oh, man. There are so many. The one thing about that show is it does so much. It really hit home 
Like it's like to sort of uh, and uh, over the course of the series, if you watch the whole series, the main takeaway is oh, it really fucking sucks to be in the mafia. Like the <laughs> life, it does not really, it, it does not glamorize on on the whole. It doesn't really glamorize crime, but like just because these are the characters that we are forced to empathize with, like it's can be, it can be just like, wow, they're all racist, homophobic, sexist sociopaths, like every yeah. single one of them. <laughs> like there's not a single character in this that isn't a racist, sexist homophobe. Well, mm-hmm. I, I, I won't, I won't spoil that for you, Jim, but um, like, yeah, but uh, it's, it's like, it's insane. Just the point of like, just like as much of the an anti-hero Walter White can be, or, or as much of like you know the debate of Don Draper is actually a horrible person. People shouldn't relate to him. Like just every character in The Sopranos is just just indefensibly horrible. Um, yeah, it's just really. We should do like a special episode on The Sopranos once we both finish it. Again. I agree. That'd be great. Nice bonus episode yeah. for sure. Yeah, James Gandolfini tribute episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm probably going to go see Enough Said just because. Um... You know, obviously, I love the cast, but uh, the director, she's made um, some really good uh, romantic dramedies, like uh, Lovely and Amazing, Please Give. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see his, his last film. It'll be bittersweet, I'm sure, but I've heard good things about it. So I might check that out someday. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'd call Please Give romantic, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> Did she do Friends with Money? Yes. yes. Okay. Yeah, I might see. <laughs> I'm not so hot on Friends with Money. That was that's that was a very you know, it's that weird indie space of indie films that are also just middle of the road and bland. There's it's like there's just yeah, there's just some movies that are so tasteful that they have no personality. Hmm. Um and it's and on the one hand you're like oh it's an adult story and I'm glad that an adult story exists but on the other hand it's just really dull. Um, I would to a lesser extent I would almost I don't want to start this conversation again but I would put take this waltz is almost in that camp uh, for Aww. me. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to see uh, her latest. I really want to see stories we tell. Everyone raves about stories we tell. So but, yeah, um, it's out to rent people. So. Oh, it is. Oh, yeah. I'll have to check it out. Um, yeah, I uh, I started to watch Straw Dogs last night um, in honor of Russ Meyer and his uh, attitude towards women. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did not finish. I did not finish Straw Dogs. Um, I'm about halfway in, and uh, that ever, that has defined Straw Dogs. Um, though I think when it came out, that was sort of that was the beginning of Peck and Paw being super violent. Uh, like that was like and uh, like Peck and Paw's violence was like they spoofed Peck and Paw on Monty Python where he did a version of like some everyone's having a picnic but then everyone gets decapitated and blood squirts everywhere mm. and stuff. So I think at the time when that movie came out, they actually were harping about the end of that movie, like the home invasion scene with all the uh, violence. In I think it. it was referencing that in the Wild Bunch. What's oh yeah 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 well yeah exactly that's the, I think those came around around the same time or I think Straw Dogs came out like right after. A couple years after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, I've I've seen uh, the Wild Bunch. I I can't. Remember. I don't think I've seen Straw Dogs. I, didn't it just have a remake too recently? Yeah, it was which oh. I completely forgot about until you just mentioned it. Yeah. I would be interested in seeing the remake of Straw Dogs. I have no idea what a remake. I think it was 2012. I have no idea what Straw Dogs in 2012 would look like. 
Um, I imagine it might look kind of like what Last House on the yeah, Left. Yeah, I was just going to say that. <laughs> like, but yeah. on the other hand, I like Last House on the Left the remake more than the original. So yeah, same here. Um, we'll probably bring that up on our next episode. Oh, that's right. Next episode, recovering West Craven. Yeah, uh, didn't mean that. Um, so I didn't finish Raw Dogs. Uh, you know, Dustin Hoffman is good, but it's. I don't know. Uh, I'm not a macho guy, so a movie about the perils of being an emasculated man are not necessarily, like, it both, it's, it's only, it's a little offensive <laughs> at times. Um, but uh, uh, I, I did see Putney Swope, um, which is an amazing movie. If you, have, Jim, have you seen Putney Swope? Yes, it's incredible. Okay. Uh, and Paul? So I saw Putney Swope like a week ago or so, and that was that's just that's one of my favorite movies ever. That's uh, uh, the context I always think about that movie is that that was a movie that uh, Louis C.K. rented from Block. You know, he couldn't rent a he went to Blockbuster rent a movie, and his credit was too bad, and they wouldn't let him rent a movie. So he just bought the VHS of Putney Swope that was there, like used, and didn't have a box, and he had never heard of it. And then that was pretty much that's pretty much the main influence on him uh, as far as a filmmaker, mm. which. If you ever seen Louie, like yeah, like Putney Swope's all over that. A lot of um, people love it. I mean, P.T. Anderson, well, yeah. uh, absolutely, Chris Rock, Dave Chappelle. You know, it's, I, you it's, can see a huge influence. It's fucking incredible. So Putney Swope is a movie by Robert Downey Sr. and I think it came out like nineteen sixty two, like early sixties or sixty three. Sixty three. That was a little bit later. Anyway, it's, it came out in like the mid sixties. Oh, maybe sixty. Low budget, low budget black and white movie um, about uh, a very surreal comedy about a CEO uh, of a major company dies, and they have to vote a new CEO, and and all of the all the board of directors. The only black person there is Putney Swope, and he is the music director for the, and it's an advertising uh, company. Um, and so they all vote for Putney Swope because they think no one else will vote for Putney Swope and because they want to be the one elected. So Putney Swope ends up becoming the leader of an advertising executive. And then it basically becomes this surreal version of white of a white nightmare <laughs> where it's just like it's everything that uh, racists like fear of would fear about civil rights and all that was just like. Where it's just like, yeah, he just fucking fires all the white people, and all and all of his all of his commercials are super crass, and and they're all about soul, and they're all about like black brotherhood, and it's oh man, and it's and he stops selling, and he stops selling, uh, doing advertisements for like war toys and stuff like that, and uh, because it supports the military industrial context uh, or complex, so then the U.S. government is trying to stop Putney Swope, and it's but really just. That movie, it's sort of, it's sort of like the best movie. It's the best. It's kind of what I always hope for whenever I watch a John Waters movie and never quite get, which is just every single scene is there's something in it that's surprising and it's a little there's a little twist and I don't know what to expect at any given point. Um, it keeps sort of, you know, its tone is very flexible. Its its satirical uh, targets are really flexible. It goes all over the place. the The president is played by a midget. Uh, and, and there's like this ex-Nazi who is his main, uh, his main advisor or whatever. And then like, oh, it's so good. And, but yeah, just like every scene, there's just a different game going on. There's different running jokes and the fake commercials. So the movie's like black and white, but the fake commercials are all shot in color. And the commercials are just hysterical. 
Um, yeah, just everything about that movie, it's just one of the best satirical films I've ever seen. Um, just, it goes so far over the top and it's so inventive and it's, uh, yeah, it's just so flexible and it's really amazing. Um, yeah, it's kind of anarchic, you know, it's, it's almost like the plot is so loose that this just becomes this collection of satirical themes that yeah, I, I really love. It actually, yeah, it kind of reminded me of Catch-22. Yeah, um, I can see that. I, I, think it's, I think it's much better than Catch-22. It's much more tonally coherent, and it's, it's does, and it doesn't make and it doesn't make the mistake of trying to take itself seriously at any given point. But, mm-hmm. um, and it's definitely as vicious as Catch-22. But, you know, that's a good point. Yeah, it's yeah, it does feel almost modular, like there were sketches um, that are sort of sewn together, as opposed to uh, as opposed to a feature film with a story. And it's the kind of movie that, yeah, I, I did not, I didn't know that Dave Chappelle cited Putney Swope, but it makes sense thinking about oh, yeah. Dave Chappelle's sketches because Chappelle's show is another is a show that, like, I love, like, really, uh, I love really conceptual sketch comedy. Like I think most sketches on Mr. Show, you can usually walk back the concept and figure out a, what, what they're actually saying and what they're commenting on. Most things are, most sketches on Mr. Show are about something. Um, yeah. and I love, you know, key and key and peel is very the same way. And they're very like well-constructed, uh, sketches about a very specific thing. And they just explore this thing for three or four minutes or whatever. But like Chappelle show, it had that anarchy to it. Chappelle mm-hmm. show, he would be doing he would be he would he would have a sketch that had a premise like the racial draft or whatever uh not the, not the racial dratch the <laughs> racial the racial uh draft um and but then they would also just like oh and here's most deaf improvising weird nonsense words and here's some other thing and here's a weird character and here's a poop joke and here's a more improvisation and oh also here's the brilliant uh point that we were making like his his sketches feel so uh feel very kind of close to that um at their best. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wish Spike yeah. Lee would have like adopted more of the sort of Putney Swope feel for Bamboozled because like the, he is could be a great satirist, you know. But yeah. and I I feel like Bamboozled I admire its ambitions and what it's trying to say, but the execution just got really uh, heavy-handed and sloppy for me. And I, th- I think he, he, he could have, you know, done his, you know, version of network, so to speak, but took a more, you know, absurdist approach and had it have that sort of um, loose structure of something like Putney Swope. But, but like, having, like, a last ten minutes of a uh, you know, entire montage of, you know, the the things he finds uh, racially inappropriate from television, I just yeah. thought was kind of too much. Well, I think in general, Spike Lee has a problem with uh, um, sort of maybe, I don't want to call it self-awareness because maybe he's making the exact movies he wants to make and he wants these movies to have these rough mm, edges. Yeah. But he'll often make choices that, are seem to be very rooted in. I want to make a bold choice, and they don't always fit overall. Right. Um, I would I would say do the right thing feels like his network. Like I'm as like do the right thing gets across everything. Uh, I mean, it's not specifically about the media, which I guess it would it was probably what you were actually saying. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but like, no, you're you're right about Bamboozled uh, for sure. It's it's definitely a mess, and it's a movie I want to like way more than I do. Mm. Right. But on the other hand, I liked that Spike Lee. I was just having this conversation uh, with with my friend Regina. Like, I love that Spike Lee will just shove your face in something, and he'll break his own movie. Um, and it makes more like he does it way more successfully in you know like Do the Right Thing is one of the greatest movies ever made. So you, you always use that as an example for things done right. But like. You know, there's parts to do the right thing where he breaks the fourth wall and Radio Raheem just starts doing the uh, love and hate thing from Night of the yeah. Hunter right into the camera. And you have all of the different characters with the camera zooming into them as they're just saying all these racial epithets and everything. Like, uh, And it's just sort of letting out aggression. I mean, there, there's that Ed, great Ed Norton speech in 25th Hour. Oh, like, yeah. those, those moments wouldn't exist if Spike Lee wasn't the kind of director who just say, fuck it. And, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like, like I love in Malcolm X that he just said, fuck it. I'm going to show you a dictionary. You go home and look at your dictionary and you look up black. It's going to say the same thing that this dictionary in this movie shows. And it's sort of just like <laughs> he's not afraid to really get in your face. And I think a problem with a lot of films that are about things, especially films by Hollywood that are sort of they, they're sort of trying to be very tasteful and they're trying to because they're trying to be Oscar Beatty and everything. Um, which is Warren Beatty's uh, son, uh, brother, oh, by the way, Oscar boy, Beatty. Oh, boy, oh, um, boy, that was but, like um, a gym joke. Yeah, but no, no, they're trying to be Oscar Beatty, so they're just going to tell a story about a noble person struggling with oppression and everything and sort of them overcoming it and its inspirational story, where Spike Lee's not afraid to just say, this is fucked up, like, and just yeah. rub your face in it. And I think that's what the last 10 minutes, uh, all those like footage of blackface from mm-hmm. early Hollywood and stuff, I think that's what all that does, and I think that's... I like that about him. I like. I mean, I was super happy his Kickstarter got supported. I was. I was ringing them. I didn't have a lot of money to kick in myself. I, I kicked in what I could, but like I was ringing the bell on that hard because I wanted. I reason Spike Lee is one of my favorite directors ever is because he'll take those kinds of risks even if it does not pay off at all. Um, even if it makes a movie like Red Hook Summer, which I think is mostly a failure, but is very interesting. Well, we'll see what he does with the Old Boy remake, which I'm kind of curious to see him. You know. With his version of that, it's it's a completely unnecessary remake, but my curiosity yeah. is going to get the best of me on that one. Again, it's like the money thing. It's like I don't want to see Spike Lee I know. go Hollywood. I, like, I, 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 I think Inside, Inside Man's a good movie. He's a good director. I'm sure it'll be as good a old boy remake as possible. But like, that's not necessarily what I like about Spike Lee. Right. What I like about Spike Lee is he's going to make a movie about people who are addicted to blood but aren't vampires. And by the way, that's all I'm letting you know about this. <laughs> like, like, he's a fucking weird... He, he's a, he makes weird choices, and he's a weird guy. He, I mean, if you follow him on Twitter, he just... Sometimes the way he talks, it you don't know how serious he's taking himself, but he's obviously also brilliant, and he has that kind of self-confidence that can only come from being a megalomaniac like he has the, he has the self-confidence of a rapper he is the he he has the self not not the kanye west like kanye west is the most of all of the most of all rappers he's the most biggest megalomaniac but like he has that confidence and he has that just sort of like fuck it i'm gonna do something crazy and it's gonna be great and i'm gonna get it made um i don't know i love that about spike lee i i agree i don't think i don't think that bamboozle is anywhere near good as putney swope um but uh, the fact that Spike Lee's too undisciplined to make a Putney Swope, that's also kind of what I like about Spike Lee. I see. Well, I think we should move on, because uh, yeah. we're going to be... <laughs> so anyway, Spike Lee. Um, no, no, Putney <laughs> Swope. 
but we should move on to the director of the episode, which Plus. is Meyer. Hey, little girl, my maiden's yours. I know you have a very nice bus. I'll send you a wine. Ooh, I'm your smile. If you're a tough cheek with a taste of the grass, I'll be in a movie where you kiss on ass. All right, you're high. Ooh, I'm your smile. several industrial films, freelance as a still photographer, and became a well-known glamour photographer for uh, Hugh Hefner. His first feature was the nudist comedy, The Immoral Mr. Tease. And then, over the next decade, he made nearly 20 movies with a trademark blend of odd humor, huge-breasted starlets, and all-American sleaze, including such notable films as Faster Pussycat Kill Kill and Vixen. Russ Meyer was one of a kind, a true auteur who wrote, directed, edited, photographed, photographed, and distributed all of his own films. It's pretty great. Let's hear more about one of his more renowned classics. Russ Meyer, uh, he he started as a, as a filmmaker in the army. He he was a uh, he was a combat photographer for World War II. I do you know? Did he still photography or was he shooting footage at the point? Mostly he was he was shooting footage. footage. I think he did some some still photography, but mostly he was uh, he was shooting a lot of. A lot of footage runs so. so yeah so he he comes from that school and that's the way he would run his sets apparently is just like as a military operation um just everyone up at the crack of dawn and he just he was just a total dictator and a tyrant um but uh russ meyer after that he i believe he was a sort of a who was just sort of a fetish photographer or like just a 
like pinup kind of photographer. Right, right. Yeah, he tried to kind of break into the the film industry, but he found he could make more money uh, just by being a pinup photographer and kind of got to know got to know girls and kind of the the seedy underworld that way. Yeah. So so like his early films that he made were really just very very small extensions out of that world. Uh, they're, 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 it's, it's a kind of film called Nudie Cuties, and if, if you don't know what a Nudie Cutie is, it's basically just a really, really, really tedious movie um, in which maybe three women get naked, <laughs> and you see a lot of uh, cleavage, and it's just, it almost, it, to me, it almost feels like Playboy cartoons, like they're just... Yeah, the, the, the Nudie Cutie movement uh, kind, of, kind of started out, and uh, Russ Meyer did a film called The Immoral Mr. Tease, uh, which kind of started the, the whole nudie cutie uh, uh, craze that you know Dave Friedman, Crystal Gordon Lewis started uh, uh, doing another number of several films. Essentially, they were ways to get women naked, but they they didn't actually have any kind of sexual contact. They were very innocent, and I, I think Playboy cartoons is a very very fair uh, comparison to them. Uh, they they were often this ridiculous super kind of supernatural premise where this this horny guy would get like some weird powers where he'd see you know women with their clothes off and it, it was very much if you ever saw the Patrick Stewart episode of Extras it was kind of like this <laughs> yeah. Patrick Stewart was pitching it's like and their clothes fall off and they try to put them back on but but it's too late and you've seen everything. And that, that's essentially what the nudie cuties were. That's a good way to put no, it. They, they were virtually plotless. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of an excuse to show some boobs and some butts. But because the censor, local censor, they couldn't be, it was just nudity outside of a sexual context. Right, right, right. There was no sexuality to them. These were the most sexually frustrated characters <laughs> you, you would see in a, in a long time. Uh, but and uh, I think I was watching a, a documentary recently, and Dave, Dave Friedman, who's uh, kind of one of the, the pioneers of the movement, movement was a big uh, producer of exploitation films. Uh, called them the, the stupidest movies that ever existed, and it, it's kind of hard to argue with. They're entertaining to read about and to watch, like brief clips from where you see a girl with her clothes on, and then it cuts to the guy who's leering through the window, and then all of a sudden it cuts back to her, and she's like doing dishes with her clothes off. And it's zany for about 30 seconds. Yeah. But trying to sit through an hour and a half of this is just as frustrating as the, the lead character in the movie must have, must have felt. Yeah, it, it, it is remarkable what, what passed for smut <laughs> back in the early 60s. Um, yeah, I, I, so, like, those are his, his early films were, uh, were, were, were that, was that sort of a thing. That he had Naked, uh, Naked Wild West... Uh, um, even the Handyman. Uh, I actually watched the entirety of Even the Handyman, um, only fast forwarding a couple times with the scenes we want for internally. Uh, these are these are so low budget film. Like there's no on studio recording, so they usually have some kind of narrator who is just doing just talking nonsense, um, which is honestly just a funny kind of carryover. Like if you like the opening of a lot of his later movies still have that weird kind of. Oh, his movies are. Just the, the way they open is always so strange. Mm-hmm. Like he, he, he seems to have a hard time just starting with a story. Starting, he just he has to. He almost feels the need to just go. Here it comes. Here's the movie. Welcome Here's the to movie. Violence. Um, well, so yeah, uh, Patrick, you told me to uh, 
um, watched the movie Up by Russ Meyer. And, like, for the first ten minutes, I'm like, what at the fuck am I... What is this? Like, just the, the you know, the, the Hitler getting, you know... Uh, <laughs> rammed by a guy wearing a pilgrim yeah. costume i'm just like is am i watching porn or <laughs> fucked in the ass yeah the only actual explicit sex act i think in any of his movies is in up when yeah. you see a reach out and jerk off hitler <laughs> yep <laughs> so it's so it's a gay sex act which is pretty great i'm telling you that. but then uh he moved on to these uh to a genre of exploitation uh they're, they're called roughies yeah i, I don't oh, yeah. know if it's specifically call them roughies or at least like the faster push get kill kill yeah. Lorna um, they, they certainly had elements of, of that roughiness I, I roughies tended to be a little bit more more sexual um, they didn't necessarily have sex depicted in them but they had like very sexualized violence yeah. uh, because you couldn't actually show sex but you could show kind of this violence uh, so you had like these sexual-ish acts that, that were just kind of coupled with with beatings and whippings and uh, and, I, and they're they're kind of part of that movement. But something like I, Faster Pussy at Kill Kill, I think, is is a part of that, um, it, it, and just kind of stands on its own because it's it's it doesn't seem to be there just to like titillate. Yeah, uh, it, it kind of has its own strange little message, whatever it may be. Uh, so, so Jim, I, I do want to know. So, Fast Pussy I Killed, the first movie we were talking about, I came out sixty-five. Um, that was uh, at this point he was making about two movies a year. Um, it came out the same year as Motorcycles, and it did not do nearly as well. Though Motorcycles is uh, outside of the uh, snake bite scene that we already talked about. It's a pretty tedious movie. Um, Jim, mm-hmm. what did you think of Fast Pussy Get Kill Kill? Um, like I said, I did see it uh, many years ago and haven't rewatched it in quite a while, and. Uh, I I I I think it's it holds up incredibly well especially if you're a cinephile and you sort of can um detect a lot of the influence that has come from this film particularly you know obviously something like Death Proof plays you know direct homage to it but uh even just the dinner scene is total Texas Chainsaw Massacre um you know and I think like just the the I mean it starts off in a way that you know, I ex- I kind of expect from a Russ Meyer movie, but it's sort of you, you kind of get invested in the plot, and you know, it does have that um, you know woman in peril quality to it, but it's it's you know still empowering, and the uh, uh, car as a phallic symbol, um, that kind of stuff. I really like the, the the fetishism of it. It it's not nearly as explicit like we we've, we've mentioned already. Um, but it's it certainly has almost like a like a Sam Fuller quality to it, where there's just really sweaty, you know, uh, just a sweaty environment and demeanor from everybody involved. But it's not all sexualized. I mean, that's it, 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 you know mentioning that you know he has a tendency for uh, the the roughies, I guess, uh, to equate sex with violence. You know, here it's it's there, but it's more and more as a backdrop i mean it's you certainly have you know uh the characters and displaying their breasts quite prominently as we come to expect from russ meyer movies but uh that's right i don't think we have actually mentioned yet that russ meyer's defining factor is 
his obsession, his fetishization with large yes. breasts, <laughs> which, which is it, it's funny because it's two the the two movies that we're talking about today of them in one you don't see any breasts any any actual full breasts. That's at right. All. Faster Pussycat, mm-hmm. Kill Kill. There's no real nudity. There's no nudity in Faster Pussycat and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. All the girls have pretty much normal sized breasts. There aren't any of the the huge voluptuous, uh, you know the the. Uh, Kitten Natividad size breasts that he'd have in in his later movies. They're all kind of normal looking, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I I Faster Pussy Got Kill Kill. It's I I feel everything about it is sexualized. I think the mm-hmm. whole like I think it's all sex. I think all the cars are sex. And I think but it doesn't feel as tourist- permanent. Like I I don't know just because like I wa- I went from something like up too fast yeah well no certainly in the 70s in the 70s following uh beyond the valley of the dolls uh he he would he was able to just have act like he he never made hardcore films so there's tons of sex in a lot of these movies and there definitely wouldn't movies that would never get an r rating because it's all the sex in them but Mm. uh or maybe today probably some of the later ones might uh but uh but, like, there's just people having actual sex, and you just see people riding each other and just doing crazy uh, uh, showgirls pool seat <laughs> sex uh, all the time. But, like, yeah, and this, there's no... It's, it's kind of funny, because even in some of the other films from this era that do have nudity in them, um, that it, it's not wall-to-wall nudity, like Up or Super Vixens or whatever, but, like, um, the movies, even though they do have nudity, when you see two people embrace and kiss each other, it's still that weird early 60s, like, two closed mouths, like, sort of rubbing each other. Like, there's yeah. no open mouth kissing in any of his movies. It's so weird. Mm. But, um, no, this movie is all about, like, I think this is just, uh, it, it was just, like, a really perfect example of coming together at the right time. And Tura Satana is sort of a force all on her own in this mm-hmm. movie. Um, and if you read about Tura Satana's life, where she was, like, you know, she's part Native American, uh, and part Japanese, and uh, part Dutch, I think, or something like that, uh, so, and part white. Uh, and, like, she was, like, gang-raped when she was a child, and then she got her revenge on all of her tour. Like, she lived, spit on, I, according to her story, which, I, depending on how much mytholo- self-mythalization she's doing, I don't know, but I, I, I'll buy into the myth. Like, she got, she lived out her own, I spit on your grave, like, she got revenge on all the guys, and she started a gang when she was in a girl, when she was a girl, and she got sent away to boarding school, and she was a dancer, and... Damn, like, I she had read enough, her biography. Yeah. If you, if you, actually, if you read, uh, Peter Bogdanovich uh, wrote a book on all these different uh, filmmakers and actors that have inspired him, and in his bit about Billy Wilder, uh, he talks about being on set, uh, or he talks about, there's a, there's an essay on that comes from the set of Irma LaDouche, in which uh, uh, Tura Satana plays one of the prostitutes. And apparently Tura Satana like, had a relationship with Billy Wilder at that point. Whoa. And like, she, she had a relationship with Elvis Presley, according to myth. Um, yeah, I, I'm genuinely surprised there has not been a terrible biopic of yeah. Tura Satana yet made. Uh, but I'm sure it's just a matter of time. I know, yeah, I, I, it, would have, it would be terrible, because who the fuck do you cast as Tura right, Satana? Exactly. She's so so like she's this weird force all her own, and yeah. I mean these are very low budget movies, and you can like the acting is very amateurish in all of these films. None of these films, I mean they're campy, so I'm not. None of these films are. I would not qualify any of these films as so good. They're bad. I think they are, these films are exactly what they're trying to be, but like the acting is very amateurish and everything, and you know the dialogue, the performance can be stilted and stuff. But like, so it's not as if she's this professional actress who created this char- like amazing character, but. Yeah, like she just 
when she just drives up in the beginning and she just sort of puts her foot up on on her on her bumper and she just lights that cigarette and those big boots and that black outfit and it's just she's so fucking badass and yeah, you can't take your eyes off her no for a second that she's on screen. and she's so threatening and she's so scary like she is a scary presence in this movie mm. as 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 much campy fun as this movie is and uh, and all the great lines one liners and everything like there it it does actually still got across like a genuine feeling of threat with Taurus Satana. Um, she never tries anything. She just does it. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I, 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 I forget who the writer of this movie is, but, uh, Jack Moran. Yeah. I think, it, I think it was, I think that's correct. Yeah. It's like, there's so many, like every line out of, um, what's, what's the blonde girl's, uh, uh, name. Oh, uh, Lori Williams. Yeah. Lori will like, out of, Every line out of Laurie Williams' mouth is the best. Laurie Williams is so great in this movie, too. Yeah. Oh, Laurie, Laurie Williams is, is great. And I think it often gets forgotten with, with how good Tours of yeah. is. But Laurie Williams is just like, just just ridiculous, gleeful sex. Yeah. As opposed to Tours of like, aggressive, like, angry sex. Particularly with Laurie Williams. But in general, uh, the, what I got out of, is, speaking of movies, this influence, this, this movie feels like, Every movie Rob Zombie tries to make and fails. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like it's got that. It's got that. Just every character is an amoral sociopath. It's got that sort of weird down home, like hillbilly aspect, sort of like on the farm. It's got that. Uh, and and loud. I always I feel like uh, Roy Williams loud. in this. What's that? Everybody can, has a tendency to be very trashy and loud. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And Laura, Laura Williams feels like. Uh, the actual good version of whatever he's trying to do with Sherry Moon Zombie in any given movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I really like Devil's Rejects quite a bit, but like, it, you, it, it's, it definitely has that feel, especially like you were talking about just the landscape and everything. It's so oppressive, just all that junk scattered around, and um, it's, it, and it's amazing. Just yeah, it's very sweat. Sweaty is such a good way to describe this movie, even <laughs> in black and white. Yeah. Uh, sweaty is something I always associate with like spaghetti westerns and stuff that sort of that color grading and spaghetti western stuff but like even in black and white um, just this movie is so just grimy and sweaty I always have a tendency to I have a tendency to sweat when I eat spaghetti so yeah absolutely well it's a spicy meat ball especially after seven so yeah there you go Um, so (laughs) anyway like this it's really remarkable it's a it's a remarkable balance yeah Uh, and there's and I think the thing that's missing from a lot of other Mus Meyer movies that might be trying to do something similar is just there is no tourist satanic character. There is no there's no central character that I find necessarily other than we'll be talking about Beyond the Valley Dolls later, Z Man. Oh <laughs> like, god, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. I'd I'd say any Russ Meyer movie has at least one supporting character in which any line they say is eminently quotable. Yeah. You know, it's it's not often the lead. I'd say the only other time is kind of like with, with Vixen, with Erica Gavin and Vixen. Um, but, yeah, with, with uh, Tourist Satana is just you, this unstoppable force. Mm-hmm. And it's really a shame that they they didn't work together again, but that Tourist Satana ended up, you know, doing Ted B. Michaels movies, which just seems like a waste of Tourist Satana. What, what, what kind of movies did he make? Um, he made uh, The Doll Squad, uh, and he was she was also in Astro Zombies, which is a really low-rent uh, horror sci-fi movie with John Carradine that is so incredibly tedious. It's like, if you love sequences where people are pulling up to curbs and then driving away from curbs, yeah. you are you're yeah. in heaven with Astro Zombies. It's well, that's the other thing about this. Okay, so so it's not, I'm really def- that's an okay good point. Uh, something 
a defining aspect of exploitation movies, and this is one of the things that uh, Tarantino captured really well in Death Proof, and I actually like the talky parts of Death Proof, but exploitation movies are almost by definition filler. Like, they're just, they have the three shots they could afford that that's why you came to see. They have the one really violent death, they have the one explosion, and they have the one woman that they, they could afford to pay to get naked. <laughs> you know? Like, and the rest of the movie, in practice, tends to be just waiting for those things to happen. And especially, like, some of these movies are like, you know, like 68 minutes long, and like, scenes just start off with just a car pulling up and someone walking out and someone closing the door and walking to the and getting the mail. And like scenes go on forever because they're just killing time until it gets the next thing. They know what Russ Meyer's editing that is this so different from that sort of thing is he'll just cut I mean this especially beyond the Valley of Dolls, but in this as well, like he'll just he'll just cut um, mid sentence, he'll cut right after like he doesn't allow the typical typically someone will say if someone ends a scene with a joke, there'll be the typical like two seconds for the audience to react or whatever, and then it cuts, and you'll get a two second reaction shot. He doesn't do that. He just he's just relentless with his editing. Um, oh yeah, especially in like, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, that has yeah. more cuts than a um, Baz Luhrmann movie. It's yeah, just, yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, the the, late, the later Russ Meyer movies, especially after he got his uh, his editing groove and kind of. Did that more, I guess, MTV style cutting. Yeah. I like, even if the movies are bad, they're never boring. Like, there's nothing dull about them because it's always something constantly moving. Eventually, a lot of them kind of get to the point where you're just worn out. And like, yeah. yeah, I can't. Oh yeah, I feel exhausted after a couple of them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, but they're they're never dull. They're never he he wastes no time at all uh, in his films. Uh, it, 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 I mean, Pastor it feels like trashy Hitchcock almost. Like the way the story, like it's a really masterfully uh, pieced together thriller. Like it's just really taut and well paced. And, mm-hmm. um, and it, but again, like just sex hangs over everything. Just the fetishization of the cars and of Tara Satana's body and of all their bodies. Um, and and the like the ever like the main characters that you are given to identify as. Are these people who have kit who have murdered a girl? Oh man! And the death of that girl's boyfriend, yeah. where she just steps on the back of his neck and pulls his arm. Like I've never, I like. I mean, he doesn't. He never. He really has the budget to actually have like good, like crazy death scenes or whatever. It's not. It's not. Uh, you know, it's not like a great slasher movie. But it's like, but like that is so effective. That was so heartbreaking. And then they just kidnap yeah. this guy's girlfriend. This like her tea bopper girlfriend. Um, and she's just in a bikini the whole movie. Mm-hmm. And um, just so incredibly and, annoying. Uh, yeah, she's, yeah. Very, she's very irritating, and, and like just the threat of her of her of, of her always oncoming rape. It's just like every moment is just like at that one point they're like, well, what if we let the old man rape her? Then we could get them. But like, like it's just it's so gross and trashy. But at the same time, because the dialogue is that uh, heightened melodrama uh, sort of thing where just everything out of Laurie uh, Laurie Williams I keep wanting to say Laurie Anderson but that's a different (laughs) large breasted blonde Um, (laughs) Lonnie Anderson Lonnie Lonnie. okay there we go Laurie Williams I would love to see Laurie Anderson in a Russ Meyer movie but I don't who's Laurie Anderson a performance artist musician oh that would be very different then (laughs) okay Lonnie Anderson alright Laurie Williams yeah every line out of Laurie Williams mouth is just this classic line um, and she just delivers it with such, uh, yeah. And her delivery—I mean, they, these are lines that would probably be, be really cheesy and dumb. 
in a movie that wasn't as heightened as this. And I think that's the other effective thing about this movie is that it it's very tonally consistent. And and I think there are movies that they try to keep changing tone and they'll want to be one thing at one point and they'll want to be one thing at a different point and they'll want to be one thing at a different point. And I think the power of Russ Meyer's really effective movies, such as this and Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, is they can keep the same tone but still achieve all these things. Like, this movie is both a really taut, suspenseful thriller and it has moments that are really creepy and scary and it has hilarious moments and it has campy moments Mm -hmm. and it has... The the car race is about as exciting as you can see in a race that's in a desert and they're only going in circles. Like, (laughs) like I was surprised that I was even thrilled at all by by the car race scene. Um, Like, it's... And... It has all of these things, and it's able to accomplish all those, but with this tone of just this mellow, this melodrama. Um, and it's no, it's no, you know, it's no wonder, of course, that like Tura Satana became so iconic and has been photocopied on in, onto the covers of zines throughout the nation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, like, yeah, just flipping over that guy. Um, I watched the I watched the commentary and Russ Meyer. Um, who he must have recorded the commentary. This is probably for the Laserdisc. Mm-hmm. Um, he must have recorded the commentary sort of at the beginnings of his dementia or like pretty early on where it was just because he, he, he kept fading in and out of talking about the movie and talking about other movies he'd like to make and then talking about his failed marriage. <laughs> Unprompted, there was no one else there. So he just sort of... But like he taught... He said... He, it, like on the appeal of this movie, he just said very simply, it's like, well... I've, uh, it's, it's just a woman beating men, and uh, I think women like to see that. Uh, feminists really like that. <laughs> <laughs> well, this to it, me it, seems like a nice streamlined uh, summation of Russ Meyer. You know, I mean, it has the campy dialogue, it has you know the over-the-top performances, violence, and cleavage, and all the things that you know stand out in a lot of his other films. But it has that. Uh, sort of uh, noir noirish quality to it, and I think I was interested in. I cared a lot more about what was going on in this movie as opposed to some of his more exploitive films. And I could I could see why guys like you know John Landis and Joe Dante would really gravitate towards this type of filmmaking because it was so ahead of its time and broke new ground and you know challenged what people expect. Uh, you know, from, you know, just from like that type of movie. Like it's just the shock value, I'm sure at the time, must have like supercharged a lot of filmmakers, you know, and that's that seems very apparent because even something like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even if it has more obviously of a horror tone to it, it still seems to adopt a lot of the feel of something like this one too. I will, I will say the thing that so so this was the movie I, I watched this in college and this was a very important movie for me to see at that time or whatever. So I'd seen this movie and then I'd not seen any of the Russ Meyer movies because uh, they're very hard to find. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I got the box set and I'd only seen like one other movie and it was Mono Topless, which is literally just a documentary about topless dancers. So the whole yeah. movie is women with just the most amazingly huge breasts you've ever seen in your life dancing wildly to rock music um, while a, like a transistor radio sits next to them and their voice comes out of it and talks about their bodies and sex or whatever. And um, Monotopolis was made just because Faster Pussycat w- did so poorly at the box office. Really? Like, 
Faster Pussycat just didn't make any money upon original release, and it, it uh, costs Myers uh, Film Company uh, lots of money, much to the to the dismay of his wife, who just insisted he make something quick and make yeah. money. And Mondo Topless, big box office hit, um, because it's easy and accessible and was yeah. really cheap to it's, make. There's no there's no semblance of plot or anything. It's listed on IMDb as a documentary, and that cracks me up because it's just naked women with huge breast dancing. But those are the only two movies I'd seen. So I've bought into this idea that. Russ Meyer might actually be like a sneaky filmmaker because he made these movies without powerful women and he like he, he objectified women, but he also made them the most powerful people in any given story. Um, that's not that's mostly I have found just to be true in Faster Pussy Get Kill Kill. Um, uh, so I, uh, so I was going through this, the box set, uh, with my, with, uh, with, with the girl I'm dating, uh, Regina and, and we were, we were trying to figure out what movie to watch and we were going to IMDb and we were looking at all the synopsis and every single movie was just like a woman gets raped and then she goes out and then the next one. Oh, and then a gang of motorcycle, my motorcyclist rapes a woman and then her husband goes out and then, Oh, uh, a woman gets raped and then she starts to enjoy it and falls in love with the prisoner who the ex con who rapes her. And like it, they're not for the faint-hearted. Like no. he's not. They're super gross. Um, and that's the thing about exploitation movies that I've sort of changed a lot over the years. Because like when I first got in exploitation movies when I was nineteen, you know, when you're nineteen, you're just like fuck everything, whatever. And you just, I just like things that were offensive. I just wanted to see the most violent horror movie I could see. I just want to see more gore. I wanted to see it be more offensive. Same and here. The more, the more transgressive it was, the better. And if you don't get it, well, then you're just a fucking spoils for it. And now I'm like a little more enlightened, and I see that even if things aren't serious and even things are funny, they can still be sort of damaging and weird and gross. Um, and uh, and then and so now it's kind of hard to watch these kinds of movies. I have found uh, I'm still fascinated, like. For all the reasons that Paul said, like exploitation movies are just fascinating because it's just the only the only mode of operation, like the only thing that they're serving is is illicit desire. Like they only exist to serve people's purient interests, um, and so that can and so the ways that they fill that and the, the insane heatly variety of ways they fill that is always fascinating to me. But um, it's like watching a, these movies, it's like a pinata full of id. You know, and <laughs> and the filmmaker just takes a big stick and hits and sees what comes pouring out. You know, yeah. and I think that's what makes it fascinating to watch. Well, I, I, I'd like to move to Beyond the Valley of Dolls. Um, yeah. So, so, so early on, I, I described his nudity cutie as sort of being like Playboy cartoons, and I think Russ Meyer's work in the seventies it almost feels more like underground comics of the seventies, <laughs> and in the same way that a Robert Crumb comic at any given time can just be super offensive and gross and, 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 uh, and sexual and just disturbing. It's also just fascinating because it is someone's just head pouring out onto the page. Um, and so beyond the Valley dolls feels, uh, almost uh, more so, I guess his later seventies output, but it feels a lot like underground comics where it's just like, here's a bunch of crazy shit happening. And, yeah, um, it's like a total so, non sequitur kind of a film. There's just so many goofy things in stock situations and uh, things cutting back and forth. But uh, I, some, I, something for everybody. I I kind of really like the rapid fireness of it all. The you know just we talked about the editing and the 
overlapping dialogue. Um, you know, again, loose plot-wise, but still, you know, campy and fun and interesting in terms of just being, uh, you know, um, cinematically out there and kind of, you know, an exploitation picture mixed with a rock musical, which, you know, being a huge fan of something like Phantom of the Paradise, even though it's not really exploitation, I just think that I get caught up in the energy of it. You know, the hyperkinetic feel of Paul the Williams film. is kind of a Z-Man character. He is. <laughs> he is. He's got this kind of just totally weird, gross sexual vibe about him. So, But the thing that separates... Uh, Beyond the Valley Dolls from a lot of movies like it is that it's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> Every <laughs> line is so yeah. great, like it's and it's, it's delivered so well. Yeah, and it, it's it's a talent to uh, uh, it, it shows that Russ Meyer talent in that he actually he didn't tell the actors that it was a comedy. He just let the actors he, he wanted the actors to convince that this was a completely played straight serious movie and to have them play this to the hilt. Um, and which is great because if the actors had actually played it as to like, hey, this this dialogue is ridiculous. Yeah. We're going to make it into a funny movie. It would have been terrible. It would be just an awful, awful. His, his later seventies movies are much closer to that. Right, right. Yeah. They're they're a little more more self aware. But with this, there there was none of that none of that self awareness. Everybody on on uh, uh, on screen is really just playing it to the hilt. Um, even if it. Even if Dolly Reed's accent keeps slipping, it doesn't yeah. matter because they're just committed to every word, and every word is the most important yeah. thing they've ever said, and it's just so much fun. It really it called to mind the best parts of Hard Day's Night for me, like the like when they first get to America and all the journalists keep cutting away, like that opening party. Um, oh. For some reason, in my mind I kept find myself comparing it to Boogie Nights, which is it's a vaguely similar kind of a uh, story, um, and it also yeah. opens with an amazing. Part, mm. Like that party scene where it just keeps cutting and people yeah. are just saying the fucking most crazy things and you keep missing stuff and there's that woman with the crazy face who is in my money, <laughs> uh, who I don't know who she is, but she's right. she's such a great face. Um, and just, yeah, all these things are paying off and it's just, uh, it's, and it's, it's both, uh, it's both sort of taking the piss out of counterculture and it's also just like, I mean, the only I, I, I was trying to work out an ethos uh, for Russ Meyer, and all I could really work out is that he hates normal people. <laughs> like, uh, like I think I think he's just such an interesting person that, and he surrounded himself with like cheesecake models and and pornographers and film and like stuff like that, and you know, like and the people who'd cast in movies would be like you know like Charles Napier and like mm. all these. Like I, I think he just the only people that he seems to have a real well, wellspring of hatred for, besides his, his sort of misogynistic streak. Um, it, which which comes out in some movies. It's just like he hates normal people, and this movie is just—it's uh, such a delightful, campy classic. And I think it, it it benefits from like just existing in a world where those people don't exist. Right. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. There's the yeah. one. Yeah, none of this. None of this is meant to be to me real or to say anything. And I, I, Russ Meyer, I think, has, has mentioned that word like that. There's no depth to Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. And if you start looking at it for depth, it's just going to be you're, – you're, you're analyzing just ridiculousness um, because it is all just the, the, the most ridiculous stuff that they come, could come up with. It's not really even a statement on anything. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, uh, to get into uh, – I mean, it's, it's a spoiler, but uh, you know, Z-Man's identity, they just came up with 
like right before they were yeah. shortly before they shot the scene. Yeah. They hadn't told him about this. They'd shot countless There's scenes. Plenty of other that. scenes where you see like, his chest does not have breasts on right. it. Right. Exactly. The, the most woman. ridiculous looking breasts. Yeah, the worst falsies you've ever <laughs> yeah. seen in your life. Um, well, I think it's also like I think I mean it's a parody of the kind of movie Valley of the Dolls, and if you've seen yes. Valley of the Dolls. It is it is that kind of melodrama where it's just very serious about like the the perils of showbiz and mm-hmm. these women and it's and it's very boring it's kind of tedious. Twentieth um, Century Fox released a like one one of their four packs of DVDs they released one one of them has both Valley Dolls and Beyond <laughs> so I watched them both pretty close proximity and, and it does feel like a parody and I feel like a lot of that credit has to go to also Roger Ebert's oh, screenplay mm-hmm. as like it feels like a film critic. Talk like it feels like a film critic taking the piss out of movies that he hated having to watch. Like, like what? Like all? Like every every movie that is like the most generic. It's the most generic rag to riches sort of. You know, a Star Is Born kind of uh, take on. And but it but it tries to take itself way too seriously. It's like Roger just being like, "This is what I wish would happen in any given movie I had to sit through that was just trying to be a Star Is Born," and it's. (laughs) Oh man, and Z-Man, what's the name of the actor who plays Z-Man? John Lazar. He, John Lazar is brilliant. He is yeah. amazing He's, in that movie. One of the most just fantastically, like, just queeny performances I've ever seen. And it's just, uh, it's so much fun. Like, it's it's both, like, a lot of, there's a lot of characters, and I imagine inspired by Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. A lot of films that you see that have, try to have a character like that. Um, they're more irritating than not. But he is so funny. Like I think his lines are both good, and his performance is so good. And he has a genuine glee to him. Mm-hmm. Like when she when he first uh, takes the main character's hand, I can very bad names as you can tell. Um, and, and he's just sort of running her through the party. He's like, he so and so did this, so and so did this. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's I mean that's obviously like Ruby Rod from like Fifth Element came oh, in, yeah. where like that the scene where he first takes Corbin Dallas and just like ba 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 like it's it's the same sort of thing but like he has such joy and it's really fun it's like it, it, you're not enjoying it because it's so bad you're enjoying it because it's so great like it, it's it's just so much it's so exuberant there's such a great energy to it, it. is his yeah. happening and it freaks him out yeah it's <laughs> happening and it's freaking him out oh man oh Patrick uh, you're such a groovy boy I'd like to scrap you on sometime <laughs> You just you 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 resist my alabaster skin. You will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. Oh my god, that's amazing. Oh, uh, it's yeah. The, so the so the movie is yeah. Like, like I said, it's like a Star's Born construction, but it's just really crazy and um a lot of quick cutting and yeah. Another uh, this is more prominent in like his um sort of docu quote unquote documentaries that he made where where it was just footage of burlesque dancers that apparently he just made because it was like a quick fuck and easy, but um. One thing that cracks me up about Russ Meyer is he's the only filmmaker I know who comes to life during second unit photography. <laughs> so, like, when the, before Ooh. they go to L.A., there's all of those shots of L.A., and it's, like, just crazy shots of buildings, and it's just cut, 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 and people yeah. talking over each other. And, <laughs> and, and it's amazing. Just, it's, like, this weird... That's how they determine that they're going to go to L.A. Yeah, like, that like is... The that conversations is that's, how he gets, that's how they do exposition in Beyond yep. the Valley of the Dolls. It's this insane montage, like, insane montage that is so quick... Um, that is just like a free associate. It almost feels like a fucking beat poem or something yeah. <laughs> that just ends with, by the way, I inherited money from my aunt. Sweet. Let's go fucking to LA and rich aunt Susan. But like, rich but like the Susan. way he shoots yeah. the cities and he shoots buildings and there's all these weird angles. And it's just, that's most of what the opening of monotopolis is where he shoots champ- 
shoots San Francisco such as that and like that. And he does that in Europe as well. And some of it like Europe in the raw, mm. it's another sort of Mondotopolis style kind of uh, quote unquote documentary he made. And it's crazy. It's the only filmmaker I've ever seen that like second unit photography. He just loves shooting settings and he just loves shooting buildings and stuff. Um, yeah. I love that beyond the Valley of the dolls opens, uh, with that. Okay. I love it's very beyond the Valley of the dolls. kind of an opening. It's well, it's 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 both that I love that it's asynchronous and it's sort of it opens with the end. Um, yeah. Also, I love that it literally feels like it opens with the end because the entirety of the credit, the film's credits, scroll up during the end. Mm-hmm. We're like, where it's just like important things that you're supposed to be paying attention to happening, and just like hairdresser just comes scrolling on the screen. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> it was. It, it feels like a very obvious thing, like that was not planned. They just sort of. Yeah, but it, it works so well. It's kind of it's like the beginning of the roller coaster where you yeah. have that slow incline and you're just kind of mm-hmm. waiting for stuff to happen, and then, and then the drop is ah yeah yeah that, that's exactly that that's great. Cut. It rolls and you're you're on a roll for about two hours of yeah. just nonstop shit happening all uh-huh. over the place. So and just yeah, just everyone on just on drugs and uh, and smoking weed and mm-hmm. having lesbian sex. It's <laughs> fantastic. Um, it's and it's and uh, it's another thing that. I don't know. I, we can't really get too far into this because uh, we're, we're sort of on a time crunch. This episode can't be as long uh, as maybe some of our other ones are. But like, um, I, there's a thing that I, I've said this before. I don't know if on this podcast I've definitely said it on the Cinecast before, but I don't b- really believe in so bad it's good. I don't really believe that's mm. uh, that is a thing. I think some things are some things that are terrible are fascinating, and that what makes them good. It's really that they're so fascinating that they're like the room is fascinating because as you watch it, it's just like Tommy Wiseau's in poured out. It's not yeah. and 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 all of the technical, all of the horrible acting and all of the terrible writing, like that all just serves to elevate that aspect of it, which is the fascinating part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a lot of people don't like giving credit to movies that are deliberately campy. Is that you, Jim? Um, yes. All I don't right. know what that's about. But I, I think that I and I think Russ Meyer films especially are like this where it it's a it's very deliberate. Like this movie is not so bad it's hilarious. This movie is so well written that it's hilarious. This movie right. is funny, it's, it's campy, it's the every like you said, it's you know, um every every performance being so earnest makes it hilarious and that was the point. And mm-hmm. I really like films like that. Like there are films that are just poorly made. And people go, oh, whatever. But I like films that are made by great filmmakers who are not afraid to be campy. Um, I mean, that's definitely it's definitely even in something like a, the nudie cutie, even the handyman. There's a lot of campy humor that feels like it's out of a John Waters movie. Um, I mean, it's, it definitely feels like sort of where John Waters is coming from a lot of the time. It's just this um, sort of camp sensibility. And I love that Russ Myers, military GI, who runs his fucking <laughs> like has the, the comic sensibilities of a gay man, <laughs> like. <laughs> I love that fucking Russ Meyer's sense of humor is the exact like like Beyond the Valley of Dolls is just like it's just heavy. it's just like a, it's just like a dream campy like gay movie um, and I love, love that's his sensibility mm-hmm. when he's this, this yeah. oh, Russ, Russ like you hear him <laughs> open movies like you hear his narration just, or you hear him talk and it's just no he just guy wanted here. everything bigger and yeah. just mm-hmm. giant and it wasn't just the breasts it was the you know the atmosphere the yeah. whole thing and just had. This this body exuberance about everything, and just wanted to to get that across in his movies, and and I think happened most successfully weirdly in, in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, which is one of the only two like studio movies. That yeah, like that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. interesting. 
about Beyond the Valley Dolls is you would expect, oh, this is the one where he had a bad experience and he had to filter himself and everything. And he sort of, like, there's not as much nudity and sex. No. Um, there's, oh, there's plenty of nudity and sex and there's plenty of large breasts in Beyond the Valley Dolls. But, like, it's not as much as, like, something like that. Right. I, I'm actually shocked that does not, it, it still goes out with an NC-17 rating. And that's really puzzled me because, yeah. like, there's nothing in there that strikes me as being particularly, not like, overly offensive. I mean, yes, there's breasts and, you know, plenty of weirdness, but, you know, <laughs> to, to me, it, it's not an NC-17 movie no. at all, but that's that's the MPAA. Yeah. It's gleefully sleazy. <laughs> I, do, I don't know if exploitation movies could be made like this anymore. Yeah. Like, I just think about exploitation movies now, they're all too self... Like, I think they're too self-conscious. Yeah, like, yeah. I, but is it possible for a non... Like, is it possible for something to be an exploitation movie other than Robert Rod- Or Okay, so there's two kinds of self-conscious. So there's, like, the one that's Robert Rodriguez, and it's just like, I'm Ugh. fucking wacky, and I'm going to yeah. cast... Char- Amelia, I'm going to cast uh, Charlie Sheen as as the president, because right. fucking waka waka, like... And it's just going crazy. It's trolling, and it's, basically. Yeah, and it's just, like, way too winking and knowing. And then there's the Quentin Tarantino... Uh, knowing, which is he'll take the exploitation movie form and he'll actually like, well, what if I populated this with three-dimensional characters? Mm-hmm. And what if I gave this, uh, this is still drawing from the tradition of exploitation. This, there's still, like, you know, like like uh, like a Django Unchained is still a black exploitation movie and it still had a lot of controversy over its use of the N-word and stuff like that. Like, it's still full of exploited developments and violence and stuff, but mm-hmm. he uses it to tell a more complicated, thematically interesting and rich story is there is it possible that someone could come out and just do a movie that would be the equivalent of a Russ Meyer movie now without knowing? Like, I, I think it's possible, but it would involve uh, basically doing what Russ Meyer did and tricking the actors. And yeah, basically mm-hmm. pretending to make a completely different movie. Well, I guess in that case, not... it would be like Verhoeven and Starship Troopers or, or Showgirls. I can see that, um, but uh, no, I've, yeah. yeah, like I, I think. To a lesser extent, maybe like Black Snake Moans, another movie that sort of just takes the most pulpious, uh, <laughs> on its face, most offensive concept of an exploitation movie possible, and then it's sort of like, well, what if these were actual characters? Right. What if, yeah. what if it wasn't chaining a white woman up that cured her? What if it was when they started talking to each other? That's what cured. Her. Now that's I, a I sweaty that, movie. <laughs> yeah, it's not a sweaty. Well, Craig Brewer shoots the South really well. Yeah, he um, does. Um, Craig Brewer just didn't do anything really well. Um, but he should he should be yeah. the one if there was ever going to be a remake. I know Tarantino talked about remaking Faster Pussycat, but you could man. though. Mm. Who would you cast? I don't know. What would it's you, a good I question. Mean, you could you could you could take that name and you could say, all right, this is my interpretation of Russ Meyer's Faster Pussycat Kill right. Kill, but it wouldn't be the same story. It couldn't yeah. be the same. Characters. Well, there actually was an all drag remake about you know, 15 years ago called Days of Pentecost with Alexis Arquette. Oh, really? But, was it uh, film? It, it, yeah, it's on film. It, it's hmm. very. I've never actually. I haven't been able to track down a video copy of yeah. it for a while, but uh, um, and it's apparently relatively entertaining and just kind of ridiculous and right. fun. And I, I honestly think you know if you're going to do it. You might as well use drag queens. Yeah, that's so. a good point. That's, I was about to, yeah, I, I, the, uh, Tura Satana, the only other person who has like discreet presence of her is like Divine. Yeah. Like, Divine is the, I mean, obviously you can't use Divine now, but like, you know, like that is, yeah, drag queens would probably be it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Beyond the, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the music's really good too. That's oh, yeah. That's the thing about that. Great. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I really enjoy the the songs in it. Uh, I, I like I like well, the second that era of psychedelic music. Yeah, um, yeah. I I think when I was a kid, I was a big fan of Incense and Peppermints. That song, and <laughs> like I I think the soundtrack is pretty awesome. Really, it is. It is. It's actually the uh, the I believe the writer. Um, I have to double check this. Uh, one of the, the lead songwriters also wrote songs for the Archies. Oh, really? So, okay, so got, uh, he has had that pop uh, pop knowledge sure. to, to put it together. So, yeah. So that uh, Beyond the Valley, yeah, it's so singular. It's it it's really it's hard to talk because again, it's just so much that makes it work is just the pacing and it's so funny. Yeah, and it's and the dialogue and um, it's a know, cornucopia of pop mm-hmm. art. You know, yeah, the sec- and the the the, uh, the Sex Pistols version of it that that was in production, where that Roger Ebert and Russ Meyer were going to do, I can't imagine that being anywhere near the same Bambi. thing. Yeah, yeah. sounds insane. It's, I I'm I'm sorry that didn't get made, but I'm sure it probably uh, would not have ended up particularly well. well. Some form so. of it got made. Some form of it. They they shot it for I think like four days, five days. Yeah, uh, but then financing ran out, and they it never got back together. Um, and some footage was used in the Great Rock and Roll Swindle. That's right, the Great um, Rock and Roll Swindle. Yeah, mm-hmm. but uh, not not a whole lot. And, you know, there probably just isn't that much usable footage out there. Yeah. So, um, yeah, Russ Meyer, uh, do you guys have any other movies you want to talk about real quick? Well, I, th- I, I mentioned Up as being one of the other ones I got to see, and it just, it was a little too cartoonish for me. I mean, I, I definitely laughed, and you know the outrageousness of it all. Really, you know, it. I have to be in that in the mood for something like that. But you know, having the Greek chorus, um, you know, that woman sort of narrating the story as it goes along. Kitten uh, Natividad, but that's not not actually her voice because she had an incredibly <laughs> thick accent at the time, and they had to redub her. So yeah, and the goofy sound effects. It it was really insanely over the top and uh by, by the time like you know somebody's getting chainsawed by the end i was just like man i would have loved this movie watching it with a bunch of buddies when i was 18 years old you know i i i, I can appreciate it now but it's not something i'm just gonna pop in you know whenever i feel like it i'm i imagine lloyd kaufman has seen up quite a oh, bit yeah. it's <laughs> trauma to me yeah that's totally oh, no, that's totally true so you mentioned the sound effects um, the thing about Up is the same way that uh, Beyond the Valley Dolls is like a middle finger to that uh, sort of A Star is Born ripoff kind of movie. <laughs> like, Up is like, it's, it just feels like a big middle finger to the idea of plot. Yeah. <laughs> like, by the end of it, there are just two naked women chasing each other with knives in a stream, and they're just screaming exposition at each other. And there's like four plot twists in the last five minutes. But it's like, by the way, because I was Hitler's son. Because I'm actually hit the star. What's that? Oh, well, it's because of that. And then, and like at, at some point, like they just stop and like, oh, there's my knife. Like she drops her knife. Like it's hysterical that they're just screaming this exposition back and forth at each other. And I, uh, and to a lesser extent, up is very watchable for me. To, and I, I have to admit, just because, like in the '70s, the breasts in those movies are so big, and those are very attractive naked women, yeah. and they're naked so much. I mean. Uh-huh. Yeah, like uh, I can't, I can't deny that uh, deny that I enjoy the movies on that purient level as well. Though um, mm-hmm. that it does not get me through it all the way. Um, but no, like up again, up feels like a Robert Crumb comic to me. Yeah, that's exactly just, what I was going to describe it as. Where the word balloons are just so huge, 
and and it's just yeah, fucking Hitler shows up, and then mm-hmm. something else shows up, and then and then a rape happens, but it's wacky, and then you know, like like there's two rape scenes in Up, and the second one is like played for like it's a wacky one where it's like this giant lumberjack guy is just like whoa, and then he like stacks two women on top of each other and he rapes them both at the same <laughs> yeah. time. I guess like it doesn't even make like physiological sense how that <laughs> even happened, but like like it's again, so again, it's, it was a movie that was just like. Uh, very, it was, it was very. It, it offended my delicate sensibilities for oh, sure. But I was never yeah. too concerned about what happened below the waist. Yeah, it yeah. Was, it was an above the waist kind of guy. Right. So then, eh, whatever. It's all kind of vague. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of bush. There's a lot yeah. of bush in this too. Well, yeah, that's true. There are the two. There are the two lesbians. The one, the one with the insane strap on. Um, no, the. Oh yeah, and then yeah, and then this movie keeps cutting back to the Greek chorus. Who's like, yeah. by the way, these characters are also these characters, and this is actually <laughs> like desperately trying to cling things together. Yeah, but I think I think in that he's just sort of giving a middle finger to the concept. And by the time you get to Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, that movie just has like no plot. Mm. Um, and I think that's I think it was his point. Like that's I, I like that about Up is that he's just sort of saying we know what you came to see. I'm going to give you it, and also I'm going to make fun of the idea that you came to see anything else, right? Though it's, I mean, in the case of Faster Pussy at Kill Kill, you do come to see the other stuff too because that's actually done well. But um, uh, I, I would like to talk about Lorna real quick. Yeah, um, please do. Is, I wish I would have seen that, but couldn't find it. Uh, as far as the sexual politics go, it's probably the most offensive movies ever made. It's about a it's about a housewife who gets raped by a run, uh, by an escaped convict um, who then falls in love with him, and then her husband comes home, and then the escaped convict and her husband fights to the death, and the woman ends up getting like both the convict and the woman end up getting punished for their sins. <laughs> like I guess her sin of being raped and enjoying it. Like it's really fucking gross, but the movie, it's probably the most style, like beyond the super crazy hyperkinetic style of like beyond the Valley dolls or, or up, like it's the most stylish movie he's made. So like it opens on just a long tracking shot, uh, like, uh, like driving down a highway. You don't see the car, but it's clear the, camera's attached to a car and then the, the camera just uh, it sort of stops in front of a preacher who again because russ meyer can't open his movies with the first thing that happens in the movie the preacher's like what you're about to see is blah 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 and it's like the moral and he's like sort of this preacher that's just quoting and directing the camera and then the preacher steps out of the way and then the camera starts to go down the highway again this is all one uninterrupted shot and it goes into town and it and it's just like the camera follows just all these winding roads down the town and it's really striking and um there's and then and then it follows these guys these gross guys getting out of a bar and then they follow this woman home to rape her and then the woman like puts up a fighter like kicks the guy in the balls and then he just like, beats her and that's not even the villain of the movie that's just the supporting that's the friend character that's the husband's friend and it's just like oh we wanted to open the movie with something you know but the way it's shot it's like kind of more high contrast black and white um and it's just really striking and it's got a real weird tone to it. And then, then you meet Lorna and she's this, her husband is the most, is the Dustin Hoffman character in straw dogs where <laughs> she's, he's just like this very, uh, wussy guy who's just like, who lasts two seconds in bed. And then she walks away and then you hear her internal monologue with this crazy echo on it. And then there's this crazy montage that just shows how the two met and how their life went together and how she's unhappy. Like, it's the one year anniversary and it's 
like just cinematically it's really bold and interesting and it was just riveting in a way that a lot of his other movies like Mud Honey or Motorcycles and stuff I did not find it to be um, a lot of his other movies from that era I should say um, and then slowly gets more and more tedious as they sort of run out of plot halfway through and then it's just sort of a waiting game for the husband to get home <laughs> um, but yeah the first like 20 minutes of Lorna is like just some of the best opening of any movie I've ever seen well, so uh, there's another movie. There's, yeah, there's another movie that's hard to track down, but if you can <laughs> find it, uh, see that. Um, Paul, hmm? oh, uh, like another another Russ Meyer movie. Maybe you'd like to. Um, no, I've always been curious. I mean, th- he had an unfinished film called The Breast of Russ Meyer, uh, which he was still working on. It was supposed to be this like six seven hour magnum opus that was <laughs> to be the the, the Berlin Alexander Platz of Russ Meyer films, um, which. Uh, he apparently finished about two, two to three hours of allegedly, um, and uh, but it's obviously with with Westmeyer's estate in kind of this weird state of limbo and uh, being run by less than nice people. Uh, it seems to be completely lost. But I'd love to see that footage, um, uh, which is apparently a compilation of his older films and then some new stuff that he shot over the course of, like, 15 years that's, you know, just sitting in limbo somewhere. But uh, just kind of one of those those curiosities which may or may not ever actually emerge. That's the fa- fascinating thing about it. He's such an egomaniac that he was just, like, he would build himself just temples to himself. And that, <laughs> that project sounds very much just like, this is going to be the ultimate homage yeah. To me, like, and like he wrote a, he wrote a he wrote a memoir that's like three volumes long and it's like hundreds of dollars if you want to order it direct from the mm-hmm. Meyer estate and it's and uh, yeah in the in the Ebert memoir he when he talks about his time with Russ Meyer he talks about that fire and he's like yeah but no one will be able to buy it and he's like well they don't want if they don't want to spend that much they don't deserve it like he's <laughs> very into himself and mm-hmm. uh, that sounds fascinating um, so it's like a what, what was the premise behind it like a just like a mega cut of just like breasts or like was there supposed well, to be a plot? It was going to be or? his his autobiographical like life story. Oh, okay, it started out during World War Two when he was a war photographer and used footage from that. And oh, so it's like his story. It's like his story it's through like his film. Story. Right, right. That's interesting. Um, but he did shoot footage specifically for it. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, whatever final form it would have taken, who knows. His, his his last film, I think this is posthumous. Pandora Peaks. Pandora Peaks is unwatchable. Yeah. honestly, it's it's just it's painful. Uh, I remember being excited about it when it came out, um, and I I think it came out be- before he passed away. Uh, and we got it at the video store, and I watched it the first night, and I'm like, this is yeah. just awful, and it's repetitive and dull, and it's just like narration repeating itself over and over, and it's it's, it's just the Mondo Topless sort of formula where it's just like footage of a naked woman and then just talking over it. Like, well, yeah, but there's a lot of that fast cutting, a lot of like footage from other unrelated things and other movies, yeah. and it's it's just a weird mess. It feels like a like a parody of a Russ Meyer movie. Yeah. Well, apparently towards, I mean, towards the end, he was he, yeah. sort of going senile he and stuff. He had very so. severe dementia uh, towards the end, especially when he was working on Pandora Peaks, and this is kind of a result of that. And I guess it, it mildly interesting because of that, but as a movie, it's, yeah. it's just... That's, that is included uh, on the box set I own, and yeah. that was a movie I could not watch all yeah. of. It's like, oh, I appreciate these large breasts. I would have 
appreciate something else now. Something, <laughs> something else. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, let's um, wind things down and give our top three Russ Meyer movies. Oh, sure. Um, I think for me, my number one would have to be Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Um, then I'd have to go Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. And then three would be Up. I'm going to go Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Um, and I don't think it's a great movie, but I'm I'm going to have to put Motor Psycho on there just for the suck it, go on, suck it. Uh, this this the snake bite moment. It's pretty See, insane. He retreads that in the uh, Super Vixens. Oh, not to yeah. see that then. Super Vixens <laughs> is another horrible fucking movie. <laughs> oh boy, Super Vixens is basically the story of the salesman and the farmer's daughter, like that joke of the salesman and the farmer's daughter, but just repeated over and over again with this guy who's just like. I just end up here, and oh, this guy's wife wants to fuck me. And, oh, now this guy's horny daughter wants to fuck me. It's just, it's so stupid. Um, large breasts, though. So hey, way to go, Ressmeyer. <laughs> Mission accomplished. Um, and Paul, what would your top uh, three uh, be? Uh, Beyond the Valley of the Donalds, Faster Pussycat, and uh, probably Vixen, which I like a lot. Mostly based in Erica Gavin's uh, kind of ravenous performance uh, as just this nymphomaniac that seduces basically all the males and one the one female in the movie um, except for the black character who's Harrison Page who is also in uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls because she's basically just a raging racist. <laughs> it, it's, it's a just a weird insane movie which you know describes most of his movies but it, it is kind of fascinating just because Erica Gavin just has that kind of crazy venomous presence. Not quite to Tour of Satana level, but still uh, a lot of fun to watch. Uh, oh, also, he made a black exploitation movie called Black Snake, <laughs> which takes place on a silly plantation and is super offensive, um, as you might guess from the description. <laughs> I thought that deserves a mention. Um, there's crucifixion cool. and a lynching. <laughs> so there you go. Tasteful. Yeah, very. Very. All right. Um, thank you so much, Paul, for being on. No, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was um, great. I really- yeah, I was really excited because yeah, exploitation movies are really fascinating, and I'd love to delve more in if we could just think of more directors that would give us, um, you know, other than the sort of sex exploitation sort of field that uh, Russ Meyer operated in. I'd uh, love to have you back sometime. Sure, sure. I'd love to. Um, oh, all right. So. Um, I'm pretty excited for the next episode just because Nightmare on Elm Street was the first horror movie that, you know, gave me nightmares and. I became kind of a huge horror fan because of that movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And I realize Wes Craven has not had the most consistent filmography by any stretch, but um, there's there's a lot of his films that I just enjoy, even though I know they're not great, you know? So I'm I'm, I'm just excited to talk about the guy in general. Yeah, uh, he'll be interesting. I'm... Uh, I'm sort of dreading revisiting some of his stuff, but because uh, <laughs> well, I don't, we we sort of discussed this through email, but we're bypassing Last House on the Left in favor of Hills Have Eyes, which I have I've only seen once, and I'm I'm excited to watch it again. So and, yeah, I think I, I think Hills Have Eyes is a better sort of version of yeah, that. I would agree. 
So yeah, I, um, I, I also agree. <laughs> <laughs> I've never, I've never understood the, uh, the the love for Last House on the Left, the original. To me, it, it just doesn't really do a whole lot for me. I think it's got some great tone, and then it just completely blows it half the time. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that'll be interesting. Um, I don't know what the second movie we're going to cover is for Wes Craven. It might um, be Scream. We'll we'll see. Scream be interesting. We'll yeah. see. Um, but yeah, yeah, that'd be good. That'll begin October when we start covering more horror movies. Yeah, um, that'll be fun. I'll try to I'll try to post more stuff on the blog for October. But I know I say that every episode, and I always just get too lazy and I don't do shit. So uh, this yeah. time I need it. You got a job um, now making pizzas. That's true. That's true. I work at a I work at a Whole Foods now. So um, now I'm employed, which means I both have less time to watch movies and more money to see movies. So <laughs> there's that rub. Uh, thanks. Uh, economy. I don't know. Thanks. Uh, goods and services. Exchange for legal tender. That concept. I'm not a big fan. Yeah, anyway, know. this podcast is over. You can tell. <laughs> That's how it should be at the end of every episode. This like podcast just a slow is fade out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we should start fade fading out, out episodes. I'm not going to start fading out episodes. <laughs> only, if, only if we do a fade out and repeat, like in the, like some like 80s pop music. Oh, yeah. That would be great. Um, anyway, so uh, until then, well, uh, you should also visit us in places. Oh, that's right, that's right. Yes, uh, <laughs> visit us at directorsclubpodcast.com. dot com and send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Um, oh, can... If you want to talk about, send an email there. Yeah. Um, find me at Twitter at Instant Jim and Letterboxed at Instant Jim. Uh, where can we read more Paul stuff again? Uh, you can go to the uh, Daily Grindhouse, dailygrindhouse.com. On Facebook, uh, just search for Psychotronic Netflix, and uh, you'll find the, the group I maintain. Cool. Real quick, what is the definition of psychotronic? It's, like, it's a very vague definition. Uh, it kind of came up out of uh, Psychotronic Magazine that Michael Weldon uh, published in the 80s. It's kind of an all-encompassing, like, cult genre term uh, hmm. that includes horror, fantasy, science fiction, uh, exploitation, exploitation, uh, action movies, erotic thrillers, basically uh, anything that a carotene is in. Uh, <laughs> some, some of that. So um, it, it's kind of uh, just for lack of a better term, you know, would be cult films. Uh-huh. Sweet. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'm at uh, Patrick Paul on Twitter, and you can read uh, my. Uh, film journal uh, Marthy, Martha Marcy Nash and Young dot wordpress dot com excellent uh, that be it yeah you'll be hearing right. from us in two weeks with the West Craven episode so that's correct thanks guys so, we'll talk to you soon good sense ill sense crippling mankind dead kings many things I can define occasions buzz wagons brother your mind it's like watching a, these movies. It's like a pinata full of id, you know, and <laughs> and the filmmaker just takes a big stick and hits and sees what comes pouring out, you know, yeah. and I think that's what makes it fascinating. <laughs> <laughs>